afraid it might pick up strange background noises and stuff like that. Oh, it's a good mic. It's a good mic. You sound great. I'm just uh, setting up the show. You're early. I really appreciate that. That's fantastic. Yeah, always, always 15 minutes prior. You sound like a military guy with your precision. <laughs> that is interesting you picked up on that because I served active duty from 2005 to 2009, which I didn't mention in the Discord chat. So it's actually really interesting that you say that to me on the first thing. <laughs> well, you sound military. 2005 to 9, were you in the Navy? Uh, well, sort of. I was actually in the Marine Corps, which is oh, actually the the Army of the Navy. I meant to say Marines. Okay, yeah, I, I would. That's that. My mind was Marines, but I'm thinking Navy because I was just talking about my grandfather. He was in the Navy. Well, it is correct. The Marine Corps is technically under the jurisdiction of the Navy, so you're not totally wrong. Yeah. Well, just the way you talk, you sound. You have a very respectful tone to your voice and your 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 cadence and diction. I try. I have a bad habit of speaking too quickly and you know, kind of have a runaway, sometimes stream of consciousness train of thought. So tell me if I start speaking too quickly or if I mean it difficult to understand anything like that. I'm not used to speaking on discords and interviews. It's very new to me. So I'm still a still an amateur, still a rookie here. Oh, that's fine. The rookie or the better. That's how I like it. I'm just uh, editing a, a, an audio chat I did this morning. So forgive me if I if I pause for a second. Oh, no problem. I'm still getting myself situated here as well. I heard your show that you sent me. That was on Silas's Discord. Oh, yeah, I'm glad you got that. Sorry, I didn't understand. I'm such a, you know, so I'm such a boomer tech here. I didn't realize I had to give you permission on the Google Docs thing or whatever it is to let you listen to it. But finally, I, I figured it out. But uh, what did you think of that? Uh, did you like it? You're excellent. Sorry, I should have said that. Yeah, it was very well done. You carried the conversation very well. Who recorded that? That, as far as I know, was just being recorded by Silas's little um, little bot that he has in the chat. Um, as far as, I mean, again, I'm new to Silas's Discord as well, but he has some kind of recording bot in his Discord from when the group speaks. And I, I simply just asked him for a copy of the recording afterwards because I actually wanted to uh, to play back what Silas and I had been speaking about prior to the uh, the clip that I sent you. But the whole last hour of the conversation just kind of ended up being an impromptu interview on me talking about working in the pharmacy. And so I just decided to uh, to clip that and send it to you as an idea of the conversation that kind of spurred our meeting here together. So you kind of had an idea of what I was like and what the subject material that I had already been speaking on was because I figured you'd want to incorporate that into your own interview. And I just hope I can give you as good of an interview as I did impromptu off the top of my head. It was kind of... Yeah, it was really good. Silas's Discord. Uh, it was excellent. It was very, very good, I thought. Somebody was reporting that my uh, restream, this software we're using, was censoring words. <laughs> so, Really? I've never means- heard of that. I don't have any words being censored. But they claim one of the censoring users... Censoring as in like, like actual audio censoring, like distorting or, distorting or covering up the word, or censoring like taking down the stream kind of censoring? No, the chat. We have a restream as a chat. And uh, he claimed that um, it was... Cens- oh, with, within the chat room, things are being censored. Yeah. Okay. And uh, that's news to me. And I'm trying to 
just correspond with um, the restream people right now to see if they've heard of it. I never heard of it. Okay, I'll stand by here a minute. Yeah. As the show name, your name, should I put Milo? Yeah, go ahead and just put Milo. That's what they know me as on Silas's Discord, so we might as well keep it semi-consistent there. What should I say your your title is? Because Milo, I want to put something more descriptive. But Milo on um, COVID, or you yeah, want to well, give what, you want to give the the profession. Well, what, well, well, let me put it to you this way. What did you want the primary subject matter of the interview to be? Because we should probably name it after that. Like if you wanted to talk about just Milo and the, I don't know, maybe something having to do with the time, the, the pan, Milo pandemic discussion, perhaps. Yeah, we could well, all of the, we could cover all elements of the pandemic, not just the vaccines and stuff like that. And the, the information I'd like to give, I think that's the most pertinent is kind of what I can give as an insider inside of the healthcare industry that yeah. most people don't have direct access to. So we, I, I would say call it Milo in the discussion about the pandemic or something to that yeah. effect. I'll leave Can it I call you a healthcare insider? If you, It's a little dramatic, but if you really want to, yeah. I mean, if that's... How yeah, about healthcare okay. worker? Yeah, that's fine. Healthcare worker is good. I like that. Okay. That's what... the thing. The insider makes it sound as if I have some kind of secret inside information and I truly don't, which is actually a part of the... You know, the process of working inside the pharmacy when the, the COVID stuff happened, not to jump into an interview already, but the it's fact okay. that I had people ask me, asking me, you know, do you have any kind of secret insider information? I see you're here in the lab coat. And I had to actually say, no, the, we, I don't have any information about what's going on, even though I'm supposed to be the expert, even though I do this for a living. But sorry, I'll, I'll, I'll save that for later when we get into it. No, this is the pre-interview. It, this goes out on the podcast. And um, the I, I start the taping of the video separately okay well, that's fine this is the bonus bonus material for anyone listening to the podcast and any silent areas will be clipped out at least they should be or as i know otherwise they just can watch the timer count down and wait for more chatter should i say where you're from in uh, the u.s um, yeah, that's fine. I'm I'm from I'm uh, I'm from California, and I don't mind people knowing that necessarily. And I think that is important to take into consideration. Everything I say is coming from uh, a perspective of somebody who worked in a major metro area in California. So, you know, it's not as if it's that's it's a good thing to give people that kind of perspective on, so that they know this isn't coming from somebody who worked in like you know small town USA and flyover country or some little corner that they may not consider to be as pertinent to say. Well, of course it was like that, in, you know the Ozarks or wherever you're from, but no, I was, I was most definitely, you know, in a major metro area in a city of hundreds of thousands. Okay. So I think that is worth including in there. Okay. That's good. I better hurry up because it's almost eight o'clock. Thanks for all those on the live stream listening right now for your patience. We'll get to, the show in a sec here. Normally, I would have done this on a Monday because this is my Monday I've now reserved for anything vaccine COVID related since my focus is on other psyops and hoaxes the rest of the week. And a lot of people are tired of COVID. But uh, 
Oh, I understand. I know I'm tired of COVID. But uh, thank you for making the time for me to uh, to speak here. I do appreciate it. And I also wanted to ask you, I see in the upper right here, um, we're going to get messages from the audience be, uh, displayed on the right column. Is that correct? You could, yes. If okay, anyone, I just wanted, it, to, just wanted to know what I'm getting myself into here. If anyone if anyone engages, you'll get something, but no, there's no guarantee anyone will really have anything meaningful. There's just usually a an ongoing dialogue about anything and everything in that section. All right, sounds good. I'll keep an eye on it. Anyone listening now, if you want to register for the blog to be able to comment, you have to give me your email and I have to manually add you because right now we're leaving it less open. Less random people will be commenting to save on moderation and also to just keep some super negative commenters out. Free speech is only semi-appropriate on this blog, as just about every other platform in the world. And of course, if you want, if anyone here listening wants a text message when the show starts, then also go to our contact page and you can text your subscribe request. And we will add you to the text alerts, which I'm sending out right now, manually, of course. And you will get a text message when the show is about to start. And uh, one person said they don't get the text. I don't know why. Maybe we're on a, a filter list on your telephone provider. I doubt it, but you never know. You never can tell. I guess this is going to be an all shots clot broadcast. I just thought about that now, actually. Let me change the name of it. ASC, all shots clot, 002. Okay. Okay, can you see my screen, uh, the share screen there? Yes, I'm now looking at a big blown-up picture of a gloved hand holding a syringe. Ah, you passed the test. <laughs> you know what that is. Did <laughs> I pass the Rorschach there? Yeah, you passed it. You passed the test of recognition. That's very good. Okay. I forgot I got different music for this broadcast. Let's see. What's it called? Okay. I think we're ready to stream. So here we go. Everybody knows that the days are loaded. Everybody rolls with their fingers crossed Everybody knows the war is over Everybody knows 
Alrighty, good evening, everyone. That's the great Leonard Cohen, Canadian. Everybody knows. Everybody knows what? Well, we're going to find out what everybody knows. This is the All Shots Clot show, episode number two. Normally, it's at Mondays at 8 p.m., but tonight's guest is on the wet coast of the United States, and he couldn't quite make it for 8 o'clock. So I said, no problem, we'll do it Sunday, when you probably have more time to do it as well. Now, I almost called this the Fakeologist Show, but anything related to COVID and the vaccine is going to be the All Shots Clot Show. Now, it's a little harder to find this show because everyone is on the Fakeologist platform. All Shots Clot is on a sub-platform of Fakeologist. I was going to give it its total own domain, but I don't have the time, and it's just easier to make it a subdomain of Fakeologist. Because this, of course, is the greatest hoax in the history of the world that's on right now. And it is a Fakeologist topic, but it's so big, and there's so much material, I didn't want to overwhelm and completely sink the Fakeologist website with just COVID, vaccines, viruses, you name it. It's too much. So make sure you go to allshotsclot.com and make sure you sign up for email notifications. And there is on the allshotsclot.com main page a link to the the podcast. And make sure you subscribe to that. You should be able to find it on on your major podcast platform. But if you can't, if I didn't do it right or it hasn't propagated to your area yet, then you're going to have to add it manually. So the RSS feed is here on the screen. Now, also, you can see at the very top, we have the show placeholder right now already there. So the show will show up on your podcast feed without the audio. But the main purpose of this is so you can go to the page here and click on read more. And then oh, you get a little pop-up that says, do you want to subscribe by email? Of course, you should say yes. And on this page, we have the show. And here is where you can leave permanent comments. And you can use your Fakeologist login for that. If you don't have a Fakeologist login, then you're going to have to send me an email at ima at fakeologist.com. And I will just say who you are briefly, your, your interests, and that you're not a robot or a betting site. And I'll just add you easily, and then you can comment across the Fakeologist platform. And I don't know if you have to... Uh, I think on All Shots Claude, I'll probably leave it open for anyone right now. But anyway, we'll see how the day goes. Or we'll just see if we get any comments, because right now most people don't know that allshotsclot.com even exists. All right, let me just tell Restream I'm busy. Top Calvary uh, to the beach of Malibu. 
Okay, I gotta tell them to go away because I have my special guest from California, as I said. So we're gonna pot down Mr. Leonard and say hi to Milo from California. Hello. Hello, thank you for having me on. Well, thank you for coming on. Just before we started this broadcast, I was listening to your pre-recorded show with on the Silas Discord server, and I thought you sounded and came across really, really well, really professionally. And, uh, wow, you didn't really even need any kind of prompting. You really were able to provide quite a bit of information with just about no questioning. So, well done on that. Oh, no problem. I mean, if, if anything, I probably do better in that format because I because I have such an unquiet mind and such a habit of going on these sort of, you know, tangents of the stream of consciousness. And I have so much to say on the subject. It was actually very cathartic for me to be able to, frankly, kind of unload all that, even in just a little discord, because it's so difficult to find venues and even just people that you can talk to about these kind of things, especially because, as we talked about before, so many people are ready to be done with COVID and want it to be over. And so for someone like myself, it's actually nice to be able to find like-minded people to talk about with these kind of this kind of subject matter. So I'm glad to be on here tonight, and uh, I look forward to talking about all this with you. Yeah, and you were. Rec- I'm pretty sure that Silas recommended you to me because Silas has been on my broadcast. I, I apologize if it wasn't Silas because I haven't checked all the cross references. I get a lot of tips, which I really appreciate. People emailing me saying you should talk to this guy or this guy knows what he's talking about. So just email me everybody and i will try and follow up the best i can so Sy, if you were uh, if you how did you get to silas's server well the way i got to silas's server actually began it began i guess in 2020 when the all of the covid shot and all of the covid hysteria and in the usa also the, the mass riots were all starting mm-hmm. and i got on the app telegram because it was very similar to twitter but significantly less censored and that was, you know, basically the lack of censorship led me to this Telegram app where I was looking at a lot of, you know, vaccine and COVID shot related channels on Telegram. Mm-hmm. And, and and just at one of those channels at some point, somebody actually posted uh, one of Silas's videos on there, which led me to Silas's other, you know, other accounts on his YouTube and Odyssey and so on and so forth. And then eventually to his, his Discord server. Yeah. So for me, it actually began on this other app looking at, you know, uncensored vaccine related content on Telegram. Yeah, and the Fakeologist is on Telegram, too. Fake11.com forward slash Telegram. My Telegram is pretty much dead. And I was a supporter of Telegram for a while to get faster uploads. But when I tried to hook up the audio chat to Telegram, they actually deleted my account on Telegram, my other account, and blocked my other number. I can't, And, and they don't respond to any tech support. So I think I'm pretty much done, done, excuse me, done with Telegram as an app for the most part. So uh, it's, I know there's a ton of people on it. I think it's just compromised and flooded with a lot of garbage. There are a few channels on Telegram, like Dark Side Papers I follow, but my biggest issue with Telegram or any other of these scrolling apps like Discord is it's so hard to find information. I'll go back to a Telegram and there'll be 5,000 messages. Now, what are you supposed to do with that? <laughs> so that's my frustration with Telegram and on Discord. And also, tell uh, Fakeologist has a Discord as well, where we do our audio chats at fake11.com forward slash Discord. So, yeah. Okay, that's pretty cool. So, were you, uh, before before COVID, were you generally, would you consider yourself an awake person? As in, you 
know that there's more to the story about life and what's going on? Oh, yes. I, I definitely already before COVID was already, you know, learning to question everything I'd ever been told. I was already actually going down a rabbit hole of what some people would consider to be conspiracy theories, but what I would consider to be, you know, more alternative interpretations of information or you know, looking at sources that are outside of the, you know, the mainstream, you know, sort of Overton window that you're allowed to discuss and look at and consider. And to tell you the truth, like I stated in the other interview on, on Silas's Discord, I, after working in healthcare for six or seven years, I actually did, you know, really think that I had, you know, people in the world dialed in. I really thought that I, I kind of, you know, had a good idea of how things worked and the way people really are and the way the system really is and so on. And then once all of the, the COVID stuff started and all of that, it was just such an incredible shock to me that I had to completely, <laughs> completely reevaluate the way I think about people in the world and everything all over again, even though I had already started down that sort of rabbit hole. The, the COVID stuff on such a global level, on such an extreme level, was such a huge shock to my system. Even then, it still caused me to honestly have yet again another reevaluation of everything that I had considered in recent years. Now, my blog is a 9-11 blog. So can you give me just your really fast evaluation of what you think 9-11 was all about? We'll use that as a, just, a, just a little litmus test to see where we can uh, gauge your... In in simple mainstream terms, 9-11 was an inside job. Um, you know, Osama bin Laden is a member, it's a CIA asset and a member of the House of Saud, the royal family of Saudi Arabia. I think that the most likely explanation is that like most acts of terrorism, if we're allowed to use that word, 9-11 was probably an inside job set up by the CIA, you know, Israel and Saudi Arabia, Mossad and the House of Saud, all of the fingerprints are on there. I think it was used as a pretext to pass a bunch of horrible authoritarian laws, you know, change or metamorphosize American society into something completely different than it had been previously and lay the groundwork for the next, you know, 20 years of Middle Eastern wars and occupation that the United States has engaged in. And even then, you know, the, the, and so on and so forth. I could, I don't want, I'll get a couple yeah. of there to stay brief, but that's my general take on it. Yeah. Now on the podcast, you said you are ex-military. Yes, I am. I actually did not mention that on Silas's uh, Discord, so I was actually surprised that you picked up on that right away just from the cadence in my voice. But yes, I actually am a military veteran as well as being a healthcare worker. And so I've basically spent most of my adult life inside of these sort of institutions like the military, the healthcare industry, so on and so forth, that most people, frankly, are not inside of and have never been inside of and usually only know, see, and understand through the lens of, unfortunately, mainstream media depictions of what those things are like. And so as someone who's spent my entire adult life pretty much inside of these kind of institutions, it's had a very profound effect on me, I suppose, in seeing the way things really are inside of the military, seeing the way things really are inside of healthcare, seeing who's really in these organizations and institutions, seeing who really runs them, what are they really like, what do they really believe, are they even good at their job, so on and so forth. And that's kind of frankly led to a very... I guess, frankly, disillusionment within me about a lot of these kind of things, you know, what I was brought up to believe and what I was told to believe, quite frankly, looking back on it now versus the actual reality has, again, led me down this sort of rabbit hole to where I am now. And so that's why we're here speaking on the uh, on the platform tonight. Yeah. What's the biggest thing that the public doesn't know about the military and its members? Um, that is a tough question because I'm a little out of touch myself, having been out of the military for 15 years. Okay. But I would simply say since, let me put it to you this way, beginning in the late 90s, there was a huge, massive wave of rehabilitation in public conception of the military. 
In the United States, beginning with the Vietnam War, almost every single military movie was very negative. I mean, there was still the occasional Top Gun, you know, Tom Cruise glorification movie, but most of those military movies following Vietnam were very negative. They depicted American soldiers in the military and warfare in general in a very negative way. War is hell. It's nihilistic and pointless, so on and so forth. But beginning in the late 90s, beginning basically with Steven Spielberg and things like Band of Brothers and Saving Private Ryan, that was the big one in 1998, um, the American military underwent a very media-driven uh, rehabilitation campaign and a kind of a sort of glorification, a re-glorification of war that had not existed in our society for decades. And looking back at it now, that was the you know delaying the groundwork for 9/11 and the later Middle Eastern wars that were already being planned at that time. So I guess what I would say is compared to the way that the American military and you know the soldiers and servicemen in general are depicted in are depicted in media is drastically different than the way they are in real life. Uh, the number one thing that people don't seem to understand about U.S. soldiers or, you know, servicemen, I should say, is that they're not all necessarily a bunch of professional, hyper-confident supermen. They are just human, too. And unfortunately, the, the just, like in, just like in healthcare and so many other things, in a, you know, a very super important uh, field, shall we say, the people inside of the U.S. military, just like the people inside of healthcare, are not like, you know, super impassioned people that believe strongly in the mission that they're given and that they have, you know, that, that, you know I almost said I, I'm slipping into the mindset again and about to say we like I'm back in there. Yeah. But that, you know, we as servicemen, um, you know, have this, you know, I guess um, this sort of true believer mentality in our mission and what we're being told, just like in healthcare. The truth is there's a huge amount of disillusionment even within the structure of the military. Most guys are just there for a paycheck. And I guess the number one thing that I should say that the average civilian doesn't know is that once you is that there's basically a five percent reenlistment rate in most branches of the military. Almost everybody gets out after their first four years. Uh, the vast majority of men who stay in the military and thus move up in rank and become pe persons of authority and policymakers, most of those types are actually men who stay in for like financial reasons, i.e., they knock up their girlfriend and now they have they have no way to get out of the military and support a family, so they have to stay in. Okay. Most of the men in upper echelons of the military, or at least that kind of middle management level are men who don't necessarily want to be there. Um, they're not really impassioned about what they're doing. And unfortunately, those are the men who lead the junior soldiers coming in, you know, the 18, 19 year olds. And it creates a horrible environment where you get there as a young man, all gung ho, ready to be an American soldier. Let's, you know, da da da. And your platoon sergeant is just some, you know, middle aged fat guy who doesn't, you know, give a crap. And wow. you know, he's only there because he needs the benefits to support his damn wife he doesn't even like because he knocked up some girl when he, he was a young soldier himself. And now he's stuck with her. And it just creates a really horrible um, environment that's very not conducive to um, mission accomplishment. And it actually has permeated throughout the entire military, in my opinion, is actually part of the driving force of what we're seeing right now as we speak, which is this. Actually, finally, total, no, not total, but um, escalation in the breakdown of the U.S. military, which is starting, in my opinion, to come apart at the seams. Like the rest of America, I like guess. Like the rest of America, yes. By design. Did you guys, by and did large, you, yes, did, but did I feel you, the military is <laughs> unraveling more rapidly than what they, oh, yeah. what, you know, quote unquote, they want to happen because oh. they still need the U.S. military to enforce international law and policy. And if they, cannot do that. We have a serious, serious problem within the uh, the global empire cabal here because the U.S. military is supposed to be the enforcement wing. It can't fall, but it is starting to. Yeah, they're definitely the enforcement wing. I, the United States occupies almost every country on Earth, I believe. 
Uh, the vast majority, yes. The USA has at very least some form or another of military base in the majority of the countries in the world. I don't have the exact statistics in front of me here, but the USA occupies more of the world than it does not, technically. Yeah, I've looked it up. It's I think I think there's supposed to be 193 countries, and I think the United States is in at least 150. Yeah, it's something like it's something like there's 198 countries, and the USA occupies 146. It's yeah. some stat like that. It's like basically the USA occupies physically on some level 75 percent of the world, and thus enforces policy on at least some level, if only through physical presence there. Yeah, and they are policy enforcers for sure. Absolutely. Yeah, they're part of the. They're the. They're. They're. If you believe there are three city states: the Vatican, City of London, and Washington, and Washington's the enforcement arm. Well, I think that stands to reason because I don't think there's any. I don't think there's any threat to the continental United States from anyone anywhere, and there probably never has been actually. So, the the idea that they need that kind of a military to defend their borders is is ridiculous. And it's turned into, obviously, a massive business. And I think the business of the United States is military, period. Oh, yes. The, the United States economy is um, highly dependent on the military-industrial complex. In fact, I, that's more true now than ever. Yeah. Uh, not only because you know the, the arms industry, but now, literally, even on top of that, so much of like media and entertainment and so many other things are military-influenced. Um, even back in the 90s when I was growing up, it wasn't quite so prolific in society that everything was like military, military, military. And I, and I don't just mean recruitment ads. I mean video games, movies, um, all kinds of references and music and, you know, music videos. You all, you know, it's just actually the military itself has really permeated society. And it is a form of advertising and recruitment tool on the public as well as trying to shape their their perceptions and like tell them what they're supposed to think about the military and servicemen and so on and so forth. Okay, so so the segue from that military conversation is to announce that on allshotsclot.com, one of my favorite writers is Catherine Watt, who has outlined the legal framework to create the military operation that is the COVID kill box operation. Have you ever heard of that concept that it is... COVID is a military operation. I've definitely heard that kind of speculation. Um, I'm not quite sure if I would say military, but I certainly understand the concept of the kill box. It's, you know, it's okay. hurting people into a, a zone that's where they're easily contained so that you can frankly, to be totally blunt, wipe them out at typically at long range without putting your own forces at risk, i.e. corralling the enemy in a designated location so you can call in indirect fire on them. Um, I don't know that I would say COVID is necessarily the shots are a military um, operation in the sense that I don't think it was developed as like, you know, by, as a, in a military bioweapon lab necessarily. But um, I think it was, I think this was the, I think this was the pharmaceutical end of things, not so much the military end of things, but I guess it depends on how you, on yeah. how you classify this stuff. Well, if you go to her blog, bailiwick.bailiwicknews.substack.com, she literally shows that the COVID shot is a countermeasure which is, I believe, a military term. And it is through the legal framework that it's operating under that they can do almost anything without any kind of testing. They can, they can, sub, they can go around, they can subvert all consumer non-military laws and regulators, and that's really how they've gotten away with it. And they are operating 
and all their pharmaceutical suppliers that create the countermeasure are operating with total immunity. So she really lays it out beautifully, and she is my number one blog source for how this operation has been created and the laws have been created since for the last 50 to 75 years incrementally and now we are at a point where the secretary of the department of health and human services is the de facto ruler of the united states right now and even the president is subservient to him Interesting. I might have to give that a look there. Um, so th that is interesting to hear. And I, I will tell you also that um, big pharma is heavily interlink interlinked with the military as well. I mean, yeah. there, again, to point it out, the real reason the USA was in Afghanistan or one of the primary reasons, I mean, there's a lot of reasons, but one of the primary reasons, which is that Afghanistan was actually, until recently when the Taliban took over again, the world's number one uh, grower and supplier of opium and has fed directly into the opioid health crisis that we have here in the United States. A huge amount of it actually is literally heroin-based warfare, as what was going on in Southeast Asia in the Vietnam era as well. Okay. Um, you know, if you, if you ever watched the uh, the Denzel Washington movie about the uh, you know American gangster, it actually shows some of that in that mainstream Hollywood movie that there was mass amounts of people working within the military, uh, with in you know, both with working with the gang structure in the United States and even within the uh, you know the as a policy in the U.S. military and government to bring heroin from Southeast Asia into the United States, even back then in the Vietnam era. And you can actually see some of this in American Gangster if you go watch it. I don't typically recommend going and consuming Hollywood direct, but yeah. sometimes it is a good um, talking point to kind of show people, hey, look, this is where it's depicted here. And um, even within the military itself, there's actually a huge amount of pharmaceutical-based substance abuse because, unfortunately, the military teaches both physical and mental or treats i'm trying to treats physical and mental injuries in the same way that the nfl does which is to basically say if one of your players or one of your soldiers gets hurt uh basically crank him out on the maximum strength painkillers and or the maximum strength antidepressants and just throw him back out there and that is basically how the u.s military treats its soldiers which leads to physically and mentally injured u.s servicemen getting out of the military all screwed up um, strung out on all kinds of crazy drugs they probably shouldn't have been on. And this actually even uh, continues into the VA, uh, the service afterwards, mm -hmm. because I'm not a VA worker, but frankly, as a military veteran, I actually received you know, services at the VA myself, and I speak with VA-based healthcare providers both when I'm there and even in my, my own professional setting, because we also coordinate with VA and veteran patients, such as myself. Yeah. Um, and even within the VA, they have huge amounts of problem with over-medication of military veterans because... Basically, the way the VA system works, at least in its current iteration, is that say you have an appointment with a veteran, like say you're the doctor or the nurse or whatever, you have to basically open up a ticket um, in your computer system, and then there's a certain amount of requirements that show that you're doing your job and treating the veteran, and then you have to, at the end of it, close the ticket in order to end the appointment in the computer system. Mm -hmm. The problem here being... Just like every other you know, healthcare facility in America, it, the VA is completely and totally overwhelmed, don't have enough staff, they have too many patients, so on and so forth. And the quickest, fastest, easiest way in the VA's computer system to resolve a ticket is to just put a check in the box and say, I prescribed this veteran a medication. Therefore, I've done my job, end ticket, next, next appointment, next patient. This results in military veterans, many of whom are like, you know, frankly, confused old men, not to, not to be derogatory, but yeah. you know, I, should say, I, should, I should say that better. Senior citizens... I mean, elderly persons who are, you know, frankly, don't have all of their faculties anymore, and they are really dependent dependent on these institutions and on these people to take care of them. And I've even had VA patients come into my pharmacy with, 
you know, 10, 15 different medications all overlapping, like just, you know, complete pharmaceutical misadventures. Um, and then, you know, and then I called the VA to ask, hey, what is Mr. So-and-so supposed to be on? He doesn't even know and he has so many meds, it's crazy. And then the VA can't even fully, you know, tell me themselves because they're just looking at their treatment records and it's just crazy. And unfortunately, this is a huge amount of what healthcare really actually is, is this kind of discoordinate, especially in the United States where our system is so badly convoluted. Um, it's just this discoordinated, confusing, um, you know, rapid solution, rapid shortcut solutions because we don't have enough time and resources. That's the reality of what it's really like. And so when COVID hit, you, you, you can imagine that an already highly flawed system that's already overstressed just got completely overwhelmed. Yes, well, let me, yeah, and, and it's just the the American medical system with its tangled insurance system, private insurance system, I think is a pretty big mess as well. Oh, absolutely. And um, I mean, to be totally blunt, it's after even 10 years now of working in healthcare, I know I know a vast amount more about insurance and billing and the way it really works than the average person who doesn't work in or around the industries of healthcare and, you know, or insurance. But even then, after 10 years, I couldn't even fully explain every facet of the system to you. Um, I've actually been in situations where I have some, you know, some nurse or something, you know, basically kind of arguing with me, telling me, you know, no, this is the way that Medicare billing works. And I actually have to pull out my phone and look up, you know, third party resources on an internet browser to read about how many say, no, this is how Medicare billing works, like right here. And it's, you know, it just creates this completely ridiculous situation where I oftentimes have to actually you know, resolve situations by pulling out my own phone and looking for instructional information on the internet because I'm not provided with it by the companies that employ me. And then these insurance companies themselves do not put out this information or make it easy either. And when we get on the phone with these insurance reps, half the time they don't know what they're doing either and are just reading from a prompt. And really it creates this almost kind of crazy situation where I, I kind of start to realize almost nobody really fully knows what's going on or what they're doing in the entire healthcare industry in the USA. And it's actually, it's almost, it's kind of like pandemonium. It's bedlam sometimes. Mm -hmm. And to be totally blunt, that's why I'm kind of one of the, you know, I see myself as one of the little islands of sanity and all of this, just trying to do my job and help people to the best of my ability. Whereas so many other healthcare workers, honestly, just like those disillusioned soldiers I talk about, have kind of checked out of the experience and even their responsibilities and just kind of try to get through the day, quite frankly. And, you know, that, wow. that has been my experience, quite, you know, quite honestly. Okay, on on the uh, screen you should see Bailiwick News. One of her pin posts is the legal walls of the COVID kill box. And yes, I'm looking at that now. There's an interview that she relates to. I haven't listened to it, so I'm going to I'm going to uh, listen to it after the show or tomorrow. And basically, this is a this is a Department of Defense military vaccine program, and that's really how they've created this framework. And it's it's there's only there's only one or two or three people in the whole world talking about it from this angle, and it really changes everything. It really helps you understand that there's absolutely no legal out other than to repeal a few critical laws that enable this. So the United States has enabling acts that allow all this to occur, and there are even people saying that. You should. We should just campaign to the WHO, this quasi-private charity masquerading as a health authority, and try and disconnect them from the United States because ultimately they're going to have the central power to issue all these 
these vaccine orders and quarantine orders and they will they will disperse worldwide. But she said all you have to do is just unhook a couple of these enabling acts in the United States and any laws that are or mandates or or declarations or diktats that come out of the WHO will just stop at the border. But the United States has the ability to unhook all these laws itself. I don't know about Canada. We're probably much further up the creek. So really, this is really instructional. I really, I recommend this to everybody, including uh, you, Milo. But let's get on with your story because I really wanted the whole idea of the All Clot Shot show, if we don't have a guest, is to just take calls and hear vaccine damage and injury stories. But whenever we get a an insider like yourself referred, then I'd rather talk to you and, and find out what you are seeing from your side of the of the counter. So, um, so go. You can start. I think you work in a pharmacy or a pharmacy likes setting. Yes, I, I work in a I work in a standalone pharmacy, not uh, not within a not within a hospital or not part of a greater facility. But I, I work in a standalone pharmacy that's a it's corporately owned. Okay. Although one thing I would like to point out is that the entire system is so incredibly incestuous in the USA because it's all privatized. Okay. Even then, um, all, all of these little urgent cares, emergency rooms, hospitals, pharmacies are all interlinked and like literally just down the street from each other. Yeah. But they're all they're all at the same time kind of divided up as every little every little, I guess, group wants to get their fingers into the pie and get like as much money out of it as they can when things could be so much better streamlined. But again, I don't want to fully go into that. But one thing I would be quick to point out about what you just said about the World Health Organization wanting to create this kind of, you know, globalized, almost like vaccine um you know, bureaucracy, even in the USA, those, you know, the average time of the creation and the approval and the process um, of vaccine creation, testing, and ultimately approval by the FDA is like a 10 to 15 year process. Those COVID shots were just completely circumvented and pushed through in a matter of months, uh, which is outrageous. And so I, I have to say, even if things aren't coming down from, you know, the WHO or the World Health Organization, even within the United States, we're already so corrupted. And so, you know, our politicians are, you know, well, are so disingenuous that I think that we'd still be experiencing a lot of the same things, even if it wasn't coming on like a, a global sort of new world order level. Well, the global thing has hasn't really been hooked up yet. That's that's next, mm-hmm. and that okay. way, all the United States uh, representatives can just wash their hands as they've been doing, and our officials in Canada have been doing. They always just say, "Listen, don't blame me. It's the doctor over here. It's the public health of." Authority of Canada, which is a private charity. It's not even representative of any of the people of Canada. It just was an imposed superstructure that was put on top of Canada like it was probably everywhere else. It, it does not, they don't, uh, they're not elected. They're not, an, they don't answer to any, any elected official in Canada. So they are completely disconnected. They work for the military pharmaceutical industrial complex, period. And so the U.S. is similar. So there were no approvals required because this is a military countermeasure. It's not even officially a vaccine. And the FDA has nothing to do with any of it. That That's the whole point of of uh, Catherine's research. They don't need to do any of that because it's a countermeasure because this is war. This is the war on, in this case, the United States. No, it's true, and they circumvented all rules, laws, and regulations on it. 
But uh, to answer your question, um, yes, yeah. I work for a, a corporate pharmacy chain, not not a not part of a greater facility like the VA or like the inside oh, okay. of the hospital. I'm in I'm in a corporate pharmacy chain. All right. So you were, did you administer the COVID shot in in your pharmacy? Oh yes. Did you personally administer it? No, I was involved more in the prep. I actually I was offered the additional training and uh, licensing to do the um, additional money as well to actually do the physical vaccination. Um, but I actually declined much to the chagrin of the boss because I actually, I just, I could not bring myself to physically inject that, especially into children. Um, so I, as much as I'm involved in the vaccine prep and all that, I wasn't the one actually pushing it into people's arms. I was the one standing next to the one pushing it into people's arms. Holding oh, right. Oh, oh, you held I was them actually, down. I was actually, I was offered the training and education and licensing to do it, but I didn't even some extra money to do it, but I just yeah. couldn't bring myself to do the additional training to do that to people, especially like the children. I just, I couldn't imagine. I, I didn't want to do it. What's your take on vaccines in general before we get specific with the clutch, uh, the COVID shot? Well, I told a story on the other on the other um, in- interview here, and I think I'm just going to tell it again, pretty much verbatim. Which okay. is, some years ago, before I worked in healthcare, I was I had a very kind of I guess sort of normy outlook on the vaccines and a lot of the things pertaining. Um, I remember, you know, years ago there used to be a TV show with those two magicians, Penn and Teller, and it was called Penn and Teller's Bullshit. And on yes. Penn and Teller's BS. What they would do on that show is they would take, I guess, like conspiracy theories or like alternative, you know, in, uh, interpretations or whatever, and they would debunk these things on their show. And one night, a buddy of mine came over and we sat down and we had a few beers and we watched uh, the Penn and Teller's bullshit episode on anti-vaxxers hey, and how all the anti-vaxxers were a bunch of kooks, you know, and a bunch of, you know, fools oh, and idiots being led to the slaughter and so on and so forth. And yet you're pulling it up right yeah. there, this exact episode. And me and my buddy had a few beers and we kind of kicked back, watched the episode and we laughed at all the stupid anti-vax people. And we had a conversation about it and that was that. Now, many years later, now I'm actually working in healthcare and I'm actually seeing the, the realities of vaccines. And the actual reality is that vaccines and medications are not as efficacious as we are led to believe. Uh, one thing I would highly encourage people to go look up is go look up some of the studies on the efficacious nature of the vaccines and pharmaceuticals that we consume and how that they are approved by the FDA, what the process is, so on and so forth. What you will find out is that in the United States, a, not all, but a huge amount of medications and vaccinations that are actually approved for usage in the United States literally have only a 10 to 30% efficacy rating when they are approved by the FDA. And what this ultimately tells us is that, um, you know, most people don't really get that much good out of most of the medications and vaccinations that they take. Some of these vaccinations and medications get approved with literally a 10% efficacy rating in the clinical trials, which means that those vaccines and those medications are not significantly different than the placebos that they are tested against. And yet they get approved for usage anyway. And I personally think that this is one of the darker sort of insider secrets, I suppose, of the healthcare and medical industry, except for it's not really some, you know, big secret that you need like a government security clearance with or something like that. You just have to go and search out the information for yourself and you'll actually find that the real information is, in fact, these these medications and vaccines are not nearly as safe and effective as what we are told. And to be totally blunt, that was one of the biggest wake up calls to me going into the industry as I started seeing things like um, people having shingles outbreaks after receiving the shingles shots. I mean, people getting the flu the day after they get the flu shot. And whenever I brought this up, I mean, this is, you know, counter to all of our training and education here, guys, but look at this. 
there was always some kind of rationalization such as, oh, this person had the, had the flu virus percolating inside their body before they received the flu shot. Then they got the flu shot. And then afterwards, uh, that flu that had already been, you know, um, forming in their body or you know, invading their body, then suddenly came to the forefront and made them ill. And there was always some kind of rationalization of mental gymnastics or backflips to explain why the, you know, why a person basically was just afflicted by what they were just vaccinated against. And seeing little things like that, that's, you know, a simple, I hate to say it, kind of a common sense test, let me know that a huge amount of what I was being told and educated on was not true and that it didn't just pertain to my job training. It actually even pertained to like media driven perceptions that I had been, my mind or my head had been filled with my entire life, such as the Penn and Teller episode. Yeah, I call the flu season, I've renamed it in my head to make it more sense, to make it make more sense to me. I call this vaccine season. In other words, it is in the fall. They shoot people up with vaccines. So that's vaccine season. And the percentage of people that get sick from that, that succumb to the poisoning in one way or another, is the percentage effectiveness that they say the vaccine is. So let me see if I got that right. So if they say, well, to this year we got the, the flu shot is only 30% effective. In other words, we took this sequence of proteins that we call a virus and we guessed and we inject and we, and we put it on in the flu shot. So if it's 30% effective, then that means 30% of the people didn't get sick, but the other 70 did from the shot. That's how I characterize it. Well, another little thing I'd like to let you in on is just that the wintertime is vaccine season. Yeah. Um, I mean, it's just in the same way that doctors do, in fact, have quotas on how many prescriptions they're supposed to write. Pharmacists have quotas on how many vaccines that they are supposed to give. And you can be reprimanded or punished if you don't meet this quota. They don't call it a quota. They have some other nonsense terminology for it, but it is, in fact, a quota. And um, one of the things that I would be quick to point out, especially about flu shots, they're the biggest freaking scam in the world. Because those flu shots, the company buys them for like you know six dollars individually. Mm. I mean, they come. I mean, obviously they're bought in bulk, but each individual shot costs about six dollars to buy, and then they're resold or billed to insurance at least at a you know at, at anywhere from depending on the brand anywhere from forty eight to like you know ninety dollars roughly. They're pure profit. They're a huge, huge profit margin. They're bought for six bucks and sold for you know a minimum of like forty eight. Yeah, they're just, they're pure profit, and that's why they're pushed so hard. And the pharmaceutical companies, it probably costs them about 10 cents or oh, whatever sure. the, even, the price even, of the box and the uh, packaging. That's probably the only cost. And then even beyond what you were, uh, what you were just saying there a moment ago, um, in regards to the, the, the efficacy ratings of these things, um, that's another thing I wanted to touch on. I'm sorry, I almost lost my train of thought there for a moment. That's all right. But... Yeah, the efficacy rate is, like I said, if you invert the number then that's how many people are poisoned by it. And they, oh, that's, oh, that's what I was And they always say... Sorry, the risk factor. Yeah. When, when, when vaccines are developed, and even medications also, there is a certain amount of allowable risk factor. It's no secret. You can listen to those horrible commercials on yeah. you know, TV or YouTube that list the side effects. There is a certain amount of legally allowed acceptable risk when medications and vaccines get approved. But the issue is nobody, even myself, really knows the true the true number of what is allowed. What, what is the error ratio that's allowed? Is it 15%? Is it 10%? Is it 2%? How many people are you allowed to say this many people are going to have an adverse reaction and still get your product approved? 
And I don't think that anyone truly knows this information because these drug companies are probably the most likely answer is they're privately consulting with um, with attorneys and law firms on the subject. And they're being told by these attorneys and law firms, hey, don't come out and publish this information, even, you know, even if it is something important, because if you do, you're going to open yourself up to all kinds of liability. And so they unfortunately have an extreme um, financial uh, vested incentive to avoid litigation by not publishing information in regards to the actual risk factors of vaccines on like a percentage based level, i.e. such and such percentage of people could experience an extreme grave uh, reaction. Typically, we don't get numbers put to that kind of data. Yeah, yeah, for sure. So what did uh, so, so what's your overall view on vaccines just in general for yourself and for people in, in general I have a very negative outlook on vaccines to be totally blunt um, most of them are not terribly efficacious I think the majority of them are highly unnecessary um, I I do not I I I am no you know I I'm no longer really a believer in um in in vaccination as far as being a standardized practice where everyone should receive some huge battery of vaccinations. I think that like medications, it should be a very, um, try, you know, kind of individual basis only to be taken really if there is no other alternative or if other like lesser means are, you know, cannot be are either failed or cannot be employed for some reason. I, I don't, I have just generally a very negative perception to vaccines now compared to the very, you know, kind of normal, normie person mindset that I went into it with. And why do pharmacies continue? Well, first of all, I know the COVID shot was given out in parking lots by, I don't know who was sticking the needles in arms, but I'm always kind of surprised that a pharmacist can give a vaccine to anybody without knowing anything medically about the person, which is the whole reason why one would think a doctor would administer it because at least they knew the condition of the patient, hopefully being a patient for more than a few weeks before they injected some kind of toxin into them. So why do you think that they allow or have they always allowed pharmacies because, to do it? Well, because, well, pharmacists have been doing that in nurses as well for a very long time in this country. Yeah. But the biggest reason is because they don't really have to worry about it because you're basically when you when you sign these sort of uh, vaccine consent forms, you're you're more or less kind of like waiving your your right to litigation in a sense when you're you're kind of signing your life away when you and when you're on those forums it always asks you do you have any medical conditions we should know about you know do you have any allergies to this and a bunch of like basically liability related questions are on those release forms but because you put all those checks in all those boxes when as soon as you sign off on there the pharmacist and even the the doctor or the nurse whomever is only really kind of obligated to ask like hey do you have any questions about this you know have any have any conditions you've already put checks in all those boxes that legally covers these these entities that are employing the people that are injecting these vaccinations into you. And it also covers the individual pharmacist, doctor, or nurse from liability as well, because you pretty much signed your life away and said like, hey, I even if I do have this condition, I'm just letting you know, so on and so forth. If we do see something that really flags on there, we will say something to someone. And we actually do occasionally have to refuse people vaccines as well, believe it or not. But most of the time, if there's no chance for liability, like, hey, you know, no, this isn't going to blow back on us. Let's make some money off of it. That really is the attitude. They 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 put it out like there and let people do this with no background check on the person other than just giving them a little sign-off sheet where it asks, hey, is there anything we should know? And that's about it. 
Okay, so you have been. When did you start giving out the clot shot in your pharmacy? As soon as it, as soon as they rolled out, we you know as soon as they hit California, we had them and we started right away. And so that would be in the end. I can't remember the specific time, but the last months of 2020. Wow! With so that's the first year. That the, was the first wave, and so and COVID was first, announced on three eleven twenty twenty. Yeah. So December, you guys got them. That's really yeah, November, December. If I recall correctly, it was at the end. I want to say it was at the end of you know, the first year or whatever when they had come out. Now, as a pharmacist or someone who works in a pharmacy, were you stunned by the speed in which you got these things? And did that make you any apprehensive at all? Oh, absolutely. It was crazy. How, how could, you know, just, you know, in the USA, we had four drug, you know, and we had four drug companies manufacturing. How could they all create these? You know these billions of shots and manufacture them all in a matter of months and distribute them all around the world so fast. How could they be created? I um, mean, not you know, not just not just physically manufactured, but even just formulated in a lab, then physically manufactured in bulk in the billions, shipped all over the world and distributed so fast. It's simply not possible. It was obviously set up beforehand, and we know this because the first batch of COVID shots that we got were actually set to expire only a few months later. How in the heck could a freshly made batch of the first wave of COVID shots expire only like a few months after we got them? Because they were already manufactured ahead of time. And the later COVID shot boosters that came and the later waves of shots are much more normal and expire, you know, a year plus out from the time that we get them. The first wave that they came, they were getting ready to expire in a matter of like, you know, less than a matter of months because they had already been created. And I think that was very, very obvious looking at, you know, even just the serial numbers, manufacturing dates and a little common sense check on how fast they were deployed and how many were created and distributed. It had to be a setup. It had to be done ahead of time. And it had to be a way for to, to really incentivize you to go through these and get rid of these really quickly. Exactly. They had to they had to push that product and they had to get those shots into arms. And how soon after you started shooting people up, did you get any kind of response? Because since you guys are giving the shots and not the doctor, I'm guessing that any problems with the shots would come back to you guys. Yes, we definitely had um, people come back to us and also incidents uh, in the pharmacy as well. And okay. even then we would some, you know, I, I, this is where I have to be careful because it starts dancing close to HIPAA and privacy law. But to give you an example, um, you know, we had an elderly gentleman, um, you know, we gave him the gave him the shot. He actually had a bad. Um, he actually got the shingles virus from the COVID shot. Believe it or not, the shingles virus actually activated inside of him after getting the COVID shot. Um, he went to his doctor to get diagnosed, and he did in fact have shingles, and had to immediately come back to us for a back in the same pharmacy that injected him with the COVID shot to get a bunch of antiviral medications to fight the um, skin eruption that he was having. Uh, we had some people actually pass out, physically lose consciousness in the pharmacy, which was scary. I mean, they all managed to get back up and get some water and walk away. We didn't have to call the ambulance, but we had people, you know, have skin outbreaks. We had people actually, a couple fainted after receiving the shot. Um, the, 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 the hospital down the street, the, the nurses who all took the first wave of shots, they all got jaundiced. They all like turned yellow briefly before their skin color returned to yeah, a normal. That's liver infection. failure, I believe. Yeah. And, and there's a huge amount. And that's another thing we could talk about too, is actually all of the weird health indicators that, you know, that happened afterwards. I might just seek into that here. You know, plenty of people, uh, for an example, told me um, I had one older gentleman when I offered him a booster shot, as I'm required to do. He told me, you know, I took that first shot, but I'm never taking another one again because even though I was okay, my sister took a COVID shot 
and she was crippled below the waist and could not walk for six weeks, and we thought she was never going to walk again. She's recovering and doing better now, but there's no way in hell I'm taking another one of those damn shots. Wow. Um, we got I got some responses like that. One one older woman also told me that she actually had a stroke just a few days after receiving the COVID shot. Um, we had some of that, and um, one of the actually one of the most common things that I find to be highly disturbing was that a a, a large percentage of women. Um, actually began low-key menstruation after receiving the COVID shot, or what they perceived to be menstruation. It even happened in some older women who had gone through menopause. And the issue about this is, these women were typically experiencing a very kind of low-grade period or menstruation where they would have a very light period for as long as maybe three weeks at a time before it finally stopped. And uh, one woman actually told me the opposite. She told me that shortly after receiving the COVID shot, she didn't have a long, slow period of menstruation but, you know, I mean, kind of getting into healthcare TMI here, but she told yeah. me that one morning she woke up and, you know, looked down there and saw that there was really a highly unusual, actually kind of like disturbing amount of blood uh, discharge during the night that she woke up to. It was actually a little bit scary to her, although she ended up being fine. And the reason that this is important and significant is because we have to ask, you know, kind of why, why are these women menstruating? What does that mean? Well, what menstruation is, is that when a woman goes through her ovulation cycle and she's basically her body is getting prepped to potentially get pregnant, the female uterus will actually build up like an additional kind of thick layer on it to to prepare to potentially receive a baby. And if that does not happen, if she does not become impregnated at this time, that excess layer, so to speak, actually gets shed. It gets uh, expelled or, you know, whatever the process is biologically. And then the method of dispersion is actually that extra layer of the uterus bleeds out through the through the vagina. And that yeah. actually is literally what menstruation is. Yes. It's the inner wall of that uterus um, dissolving, so to speak, yeah, because shedding, women really. get pregnant. Yeah, and shedding, so yeah. what this what this heavily implies with these COVID shots, why these women are experiencing this weird long menstruation is basically that is most likely their uterus disintegrating. To be totally blunt, um, those women are probably experiencing reproductive damage and a lot of them are probably going to find out in the coming years that they are unable to um, you know, shall we say, become or achieve pregnancy. Yeah. And they're, it's not going to get explained to them that, oh, it's because, you know, five years ago or maybe even longer, you took this weird experimental shot and had this side effect that's an indicator that's going to affect your fertility. It simply isn't going to be explained to the general public that way. Well, any any effects that negative effects on the body are never the vaccine. It's everything else or they just lump it under unexplained. And, and oh, that, yeah. yeah, that that was that was the number one cause of all ailments in Alberta. I think in the last year, unknown causes, oh, which yeah. is and, ridiculous. And, and, all, and how, how cause mortality in buzzwords like this? Yeah, how people can accept that? Just oh, we don't know. All of a sudden, in twenty twenty three or twenty twenty two, we're all all of a sudden stupid. And we don't we don't have the wherewithal to figure out why people are getting ill. We have no idea, so we just throw it in this huge basket called unknown. People are okay with that. That, that again, that just shows the levels of gullibility in the public. They just, they just don't have a clue. Now, I heard no, you talking on the other broadcast that you figure in the United States it's about on average eighty percent take up of the first vaccine. Yes, my as far as I've, I haven't researched the data more recently, but as far as I as far as I recall. And the roughly 80% of the United States received at least one dose of the COVID shot. A huge amount did not receive any boosters or even the second shot of the primary series. A huge amount of people seemed to very reluctantly take that first dosage. They kind of, you know, said, 
I'm putting a check in this box. I'm doing my civic duty to be a good person and, you know, do what I'm told by the TV and let you give me one shot, but that's it. No more. I did my part. And so even though the boosters were not nearly as successful as the primary shot from a marketing standpoint, the uh, the fact of the matter remains that 80% of the, you know, adult population of the, not just the USA, but the developed world took, you know, 80% took the shot. In the USA, some states were as low as like the 60s, like some of the lower, more rural, you know, states like in Wyoming, they didn't exactly have a huge uptake. Yeah. In some states, it was 90 plus percent as well. And it pretty much evened out perfectly to about, eight, you know, 80% more or less, assuming we can trust the data that we're being given, which we can't. Yeah, the numbers um, are gathered on a county level, and then you just have to hope they're they're collated and sent up the chain i think they end up at johns hopkins who is one of the one of the schools one of the institutions that's really run this whole operation on behalf of the military so they don't really have a nationwide efficient gathering service everything's at the county level which of course is how elections are at the county level too even the national elections Oh yes, and I, I would I would say that in you know in a country as huge as the United States, which is five percent of the world's population just by itself, yeah. um, you know it's you know three hundred and thirty million people on paper, and then three hundred and fifty million people off paper, most likely. Um, the, that number of the you know it, it's just so incredibly difficult to gather good data um, in in general for a, a multitude of reasons, not the least of which is the speed and expediency at which everything is forced to be done when you're dealing with these kinds of numbers. It just it just contributes to the greater um, you know. I don't want to say I don't want to say the, the cluster F, but just this you know this huge pandemonium of constant chaos within the system, and even the data that is being fed isn't necessarily good or accurate data as well, and it just contributes overall to the complete you know pandemonium, this state of you know, perpetual chaos that healthcare operates within. Okay, now from a practical point of view, how does a pharmacy keep track of vaccines per, for each person? Uh, pharmacy systems are actually very sophisticated in that way. Um, every single vaccine is like a serialized product that's kept track of by the pharmacy's computer system. And so basically there's like an inventory stock system that you go in there and you actually have serialized, you know, basically serial numbers of vaccines, product codes, you could call them. And that actually keeps account of how many vaccines that we have. As we administer vaccines to the patients and medications as well, there's simply records of every single, shall we say, transaction in which an insurance company is either billed for a vaccine a government program covers a vaccine or a patient pays out of pocket for a vaccine. All of it's, it's basically the history of vaccines is transactional. And whenever, and basically that is how it's, you keep track of it. Um, there's the computer keeps track of stock. And then whenever a vaccine is administered, um, the time, you know, the like, time, date, location, method of payment and all that is saved in a computer record with that person's name and personal information on it, which goes, you know, deeply into private health information and HIPAA law and all that kind of stuff that I have access to. Well, is there a patient file that gets created yes. on that database? Yes, there is. And that is just that is just within your pharmacy or within your corporate chain? It's within the entire corporate chain. It's actually why there's so many such a huge emphasis on privacy law because anybody who works for any any of these big corporate chains theoretically has access to probably the entire system across the country if they know what they're doing and know how to use it if they've been with the company for a while. This is why, you know, you, we, there's certain things in the system like celebrities, for example. Uh, famous people oftentimes have security codes on their patient files uh, that you have to actually get either from them or from like some kind of personal assistant of theirs to handle their medical information because they're paranoid about people, you know, people getting into their private health information. Like they don't want, you know, individuals or some 
some like TMZ or some media garbage to get a hold of their private yeah. information. But yes, every individual has their own private file within the corporation. So the so the celebrities have a uh, have an encrypted file that you need to Ma keep. Many of them, they they can request one. They're not given one just because you have celebrity status and they don't all have it, but they can request it. And so can the general public, but nobody in the general public cares. Only only a so-called you know rich and famous people try to, typically try to protect their information on that. So level. does that mean that you have to say? Even don't. So does that mean you have to say, "Give me your key, and I'll unlock your record"? Is that how it Basi works? Basically, yes. Would that be just a string of letters and numbers, like a password, or it, it's just it's if I, it's just a numeric digital password, if I recall. Okay, so once you go into the record with the key. As soon as you close the record, then it locks back up. Exactly. Oh, that's pretty good. I think I'll have to get one. But yeah, if you if you were worried about that, go ahead and do it. Just be aware every single time your pharmacy or any office calls you, they're going to have to be like, "Give me your code." No, no, no. You know, uh, you have to go through the process every time. Yeah, I'm sure the digital ID will take care of that real soon, anyway. But for the meantime, no, it's okay. I don't really, ha I don't have any prescriptions, but. So only so your chain keeps track of their vaccines, but if they went to another chain, then that would be another record that you couldn't access. Yes, that's correct, which also can, contributes greatly, and that's true of medication as well, which contributes greatly to the confusion because I can't necessarily see what's going on inside of hospital pharmacies or inside of other corporate chains. Yeah, I can only see my corporate chain, so we're constantly having to call and fax each other with all kinds of patient records and information, which again uh, leads to the greater convolution of the process, just trying to pass information. And unfortunately, when you deal with the public, they typically do not are not very responsible about remembering their own information. They expect you to kind of do everything for them. And so you can't really rely on past health information when you ask the patients. They can't remember what vaccines they've had or when they got them. They don't even know the names of their medications. So all you can really do is just call the other facility, call the hospital, call the other pharmacy, call the doctor's office, whatever you're doing, and say, hey, can you look this guy up in your corporate file? And then we compare notes. Yeah, if you have time and if they have if time. We even, yes, if we even can, like, honestly. Um, what was the story about the refrigerators at the beginning of the COVID operation? Do you remember that? Um, well, remind, well, remind me specifically, because, I mean, the COVID shots, like any other vaccine, have to be stored and transported in a refrigerated manner. Um, some of them have to be some of them have to be kept frozen actually in a freezer, not just a refrigerator where they're kept at you know refrigerator level temperatures. They actually have to be below freezing. Yeah. But no, I, I don't specifically remember what you were talking about, other than a couple of incidents of uh, some employees actually sabotaging or destroying the shots, which happened a little bit in the USA. But other than that, no, I, I don't recall specifically what you're referencing. Well, at the beginning, I remember one of the stories was well, everyone needs special freezers and we need to transport them in freezers and uh, if they came out of the freezer then they'd have to be destroyed but I that never really developed or continued on it was right at the beginning no, and that, that that's that's true of all vaccines to be totally blunt that's nothing unique to the COVID shot it was probably just some kind of overhyped element of the scare story making it sound like it was even more and more of an impossible challenge that to achieve the this what we're doing with the COVID shots and how how it's a literal miracle that it all worked out to build it up in the public's head. Any information they gave out that sounded dramatic about refrigerators and freezers and transportation, yes, that's a very important element of it all, but it's also standard operating procedure. That's true for all vaccines. COVID shots were not unique in that in that way. Okay, so without violating HIPAA laws, how many people, could you give a rough percentage of how many people went for number two shot, number three, number four, number five, and what shot are we up to? 
Right now, we are currently up to shot number seven. That's, in, that's assuming you took the initial dose of two shots, unless you took the Johnson & Johnson brand, which was only one shot. J&J has since been pulled from the market. But um, if you took the initial two shots, that was what you were, you know, quote-unquote, supposed to take. And then we've had five boosters since. The seventh one just dropped recently in the last, you know, four or five months, I believe it is, how time flies. Um, but as far as the uptake, like I said, as far as we know, statistically 80% of the population took at least one shot, which I believe. And I would say it's difficult to say, but it would probably, I would say the, the drop becomes pretty significant, even with that first shot, with a lot of people not opting for their, for their second. Um, it probably drops from 80% on the first shot to even maybe just 60% on the second shot. And then as far as the boosters, um, again, it began delineating down rapidly and it becomes harder to put a number to, especially because I live in a, or not live, but I work in a big town of hundreds of thousands. And so it was hard to kind of gauge that, not like a small town where you can kind of, it would have been easier to know the numbers. But um, in the city where I was working, it seemed like a huge amount took the first shot, less took the second shot. And then as each initial wave uh, of boosters came out, it began to drop significantly to the point that we actually get very few COVID shot vaccines now uh, where it was overwhelming before. It's difficult to kind of track it after the first couple of shots, especially because of the large numbers that I was dealing with. But you could see, even after this, the first shot or two, the numbers of the uptake on the boosters and even the second to the primary series was significantly less than that first shot. And I think that's due in large part to a huge amount of skepticism amongst the public who only went along with it because they felt coerced or because they were required to for employment or some kind of training or education they had to do. Right. So do you think even 5% gets seven shots by your estimation? Honestly, probably not. If anything, I would say a huge amount of the, I would say a huge amount of people are probably up, maybe up in like the fourth or fifth, maybe even sixth shot if they're really diligent, but very few people have received all seven shots. And to tell you the truth, the COVID shots and how they were obsessed over and those vaccine cards and how dramatic it all was, has all fallen by the wayside. A lot of people come in and they actually tell me things like, you know, oh, of course I've had all my COVID shots. And I look in their records and I can see that's not true. They, you know, they think they had all the shots, but they actually missed one or two in there. Um, as far as the scheduled boosters that you're supposed to get every, you know, three months or four months, whatever it is now, it keeps changing. And so I think a huge amount of the public actually kind of vaguely in the back of their head thinks they got all their shots, but they, they didn't. They've, so very, very few people got all seven shots, quite frankly. I would say, yeah, probably less than 10% really got all the entire series as, as it's been led up to until now. Do you ever get any people coming back saying, oh, you gave this shot to my mother and now she's dead or disabled? We got a very dramatic call one day from a grandfather. It was an elderly man who brought his little granddaughter in to get the shot. And that very night, like less than, you know, like literally before the pharmacy had even closed. So less than, you know, 10 or 12 hours later. Uh, that same gentleman called back from the either in the hospital emergency room in a rage, um, accusing us of basically you know killing his not killing you know almost killing his granddaughter who had to be rushed to the hospital that night with some extreme fever of I think it was something crazy like you know 104 fever maybe even higher 105 something life threatening especially to a child, and um, that that gentleman went off in a rage not physically threatening us but like you know threatening lawsuits and telling us you know. Never have I seen anything like this happen. What did you give my, you know, granddaughter, so on and so forth? Um, we did have somebody actually call us in a, in a an elderly man call us in a rage one day because the, you know that morning he brought his granddaughter to get a shot. That night he had to rush her to the ER because she was about to die. And we actually did receive a call like that that was uh, very dramatic. 
Not too many of them were accusatory towards us, the staff in general, but we did get a lot of feedback like that from people who told us about scary reactions they had or someone that they knew had. Not too much took it out on us personally, but there was actually one call like that from one gentleman in particular I remember because I actually, I was there in the morning when he came in and I was there in the evening when he was screaming at us on the phone. And so, yes, that did happen, although not in overwhelming numbers. I can definitely recall some stories like that as well. Now, how many people are like you that actually look into this in your profession and feel pretty bad about it? I don't know. Do you feel bad enough to stop doing it? Well, like I said, I felt bad enough to decline the additional training and education to actually physically inject the shots. And it does it does wear on me, to tell you the truth, not just in regards to the vaccinations, but my entire job with the medications, just knowing how ineffective they are, knowing that I'm feeding the opioid crisis. I'm not going to lie. It does it does grind on me and wear on me personally, and I do feel a little bit of guilt about it, to tell you the truth. I actually sometimes kind of feel like I'm like I'm doing something bad. Um, and, and that's, again, a big part of what drives the disillusionment within the healthcare world. So to answer your question, the other part of it is that actually, yes, there are some people within um, within the healthcare world who are aware of how how unefficacious and how ineffective so many of the medications and vaccines are. Some of them are true believers who really believe in kind of the nonsense, but it's it's just in the way that, you know, nobody really considers the transgender patients to be whatever their, you know, their chosen gender of choices behind closed doors. Most of us know that what we're doing is not really that important. Most kind of healthcare workers kind of just cling to this idea like, well, it's vaccines are bad for the individual, but good for the herd. And they have these kind of rationalizations they tell themselves. But yes, even within healthcare, you, there, there are some, there are some people who kind of you know, are very skeptical about what they're doing. Some on a clinical level who've read all the studies, and some who just kind of see the reality of people, you know, getting the flu shot and getting the flu the next day. I actually had a pharmacy manager like that who um, we had a discussion about vaccines, in which I was already becoming. This is before COVID, mind you. I was already becoming increasingly anti-vaccine, and my my uh, pharmacy manager kind of admonished me and you know told me how important they were. And then my pharmacy manager that year got a got a flu shot and then immediately got the flu and told me that he might have to reevaluate the way he the way he thought about these things. But then he went ahead and got the COVID shot anyway when that came out. So maybe it didn't have that much effect on him. And maybe people just don't want to acknowledge this. But yes, there there are people within healthcare who are skeptical skeptical about vaccines and so on, and especially about the COVID shot. Very very few healthcare workers really wanted to take it. Yeah, uh, we were just you know coerced or. Uh, you know, I don't want to say threatened because it's dramatic, but you know, your job becomes threatened, so on and so forth. Yeah, it's a One threat. Old, it's a yeah. threat. It's bullying. It is. It's not a physical threat, like a threat of violence. But yes, it is. A, it is a threat. Yeah, you can utter a death threat. That's in the criminal code in Canada. Uttering threats. That's that's illegal. That's 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 criminal. Actually, I'm pretty sure it is in the United States too. Same common law criminal code. I'm sure, or very similar. If somebody came in and said to you, listen, um, what's in these vaccines, could you answer them? No, we could not. Um, and that's something I talked about on the other interview briefly, which is um, we did actually have a few instances of people walking up to us and kind of asking us like, hey, um, you know, do you guys know what's really going on? Kind of like you're the insiders. You yeah, work in healthcare. Right. Um, you know, can you can you tell me what's really going on? And we had to be honest and say, no, we, we don't know what's going on. Um, there's no information given about these COVID shots or what they really are. With every single medication and every single vaccine that is manufactured and delivered to any kind of healthcare facility, not, not just a pharmacy, 
physically on those bottles and in those boxes of vaccines and even you know strapped to the bottles of pills there is a there is a big um what we call it we call it the package insert but what it is is a giant um well let's say it's actually a tiny little square of paper that folds out into a giant piece of paper the size of a roadmap that could cover your kitchen table and what it actually is is a huge amount of clinical data on the on the product or the medication or vaccine at hand, um, anything, everything relating to clinical trials, to the pharmacokinetics of how it really works. And you know, basically, it's a giant PhD dissertation written out on a piece of paper folded up into a one inch by one inch square of paper that, um, that comes with every single individual vaccine and bottle of medication. When you look at the COVID shot package insert, when you pull those out and look at them, these pictures you may have already seen floating around social media are completely real. Some of them are probably actually the ones that I submitted to Telegram-based uh, COVID channels. You might have actually already seen my work on there, not knowing it was me. Those package inserts on those COVID shots are blank. You open them up, those big folded out giant you know, pieces of paper that fold out into a huge roadmap, they're just completely blank white paper. Um, it's it's actually kind of crazy. It almost was like a, like a, when I remember when I first looked at it, it was almost like a, you know, a scene in a movie where you, you have some kind of revelation and you hear the like little string chord where it goes like, Ree! and you know, I, I'm like, what is this? What is this horrible shot? What is this? And I fold out the paper and it's blank. There's nothing on there. It doesn't tell you anything. And we're expected to administer this to people and have them sign waiver forms and yeah. offer them consultations and act like we're the experts. And we don't even know what it is or how it works. And there's no information on it. Wow. It's outrageous. And we actually did have a few people ask us that in those words, like, you know, what's really going on? Do you have any insider information? Can you, and we had to say, no, we don't, we don't know what's going on either. And then we still all just marched forward with it. Have you ever seen anything, any other vaccine or is a flu shot, by the way, called a vaccine? It yes, is. it is. A flu, a flu shot is considered a vaccine. And no, I've never seen anything like that on any other product. Um, that would be totally unacceptable on pretty much anything else. To not give any kind of information on it. It's, it's industry standard across the United States, and I imagine much of the world as well. So, but uh, um, it's more proof it's operating outside the system. This this countermeasure uh, that it doesn't. Yeah, it, it is. It is uh, yeah, it's absolutely circumventing all standard operating procedure. And it's yeah. act, it was, again, actually quite shocking when I saw it. I actually I almost couldn't believe it when I folded out the stupid package insert and I saw that there was nothing on there. I was just that really took me back. Yeah. By the way, I just got an email from Catherine Watt. And she said she will not come on my show, but she thanks for the uh, she thanked me for the the post I put up, linking to her blog. So, okay, well that's two strikes, so she doesn't want to come on. I guess the funny thing is she does so many different shows. I find it kind of strange that she doesn't want to face the fakeologist in any way. But maybe I'm just too doubting of a Thomas for her. But uh, she does a a wide range of so called alternative media shows but she won't be coming on this one but i still think she is the real deal so far and i will continue to promote her work so too bad too bad Catherine, if you're listening but uh i still think you're on the right track out of all the people in the world not too many people have figured this out like she has now somebody came in and was hesitant to take the vaccine, would you be able to sway them either way? Would you ever just? It's my job to talk them into it. Okay. To be quite, to be quite frank, the only time that we're allowed to, the only thing that we're really allowed to say to the patients as far as dissuading them from vaccines 
is we if someone says if somebody comes in and actually says I want like five vaccines at once or I want you know basically anything more than two vaccines at once we typically are supposed to kind of um, advise them that that may not be a good idea if they plan have any immediate plans in the next couple of days because they might feel sick or under the weather from taking in so many vaccines at once but other than those kind of minor uh, liability based um, consultation advice we're basically supposed to pretty much not coerce but talk people into taking the vaccines we're supposed to you know emphasize in, in general unless there's an actual safety risk where we have to then say like either a no we cannot give this to you because of whatever whatever or if someone never says i want to you know i want every vaccine known to man shot into my arm right now which occasionally you get one of those we have to tell them you know even in the situations where we can hypothetically do that we have to advise them you might feel cruddy in the next few days and for some people they just say oh well i have plans with friends this weekend so i'll just take you know two vaccines instead of three or something and that does happen but um in general we're supposed to talk them into getting the shots not talk them of getting out of it and we only are really allowed to deny for you know significant healthcare reasons or if it's not the appropriate time i.e. if sometimes you'll have a series of vaccines or somebody has to receive one vaccine in a in a series and then they have to receive the next one 6 months later sometimes people want to get it 5 months later instead of 6 months later but we can't go against that the rules laws and policies governing that so we have to tell them no we cannot give it to you return in a month and we can give it to you then that kind of thing so there's no chance that anyone in the vaccine dispensing business could dissuade somebody from taking it they would what would happen to them you well you let me put it this way it would be it would be like any other form of misbehavior you would probably get uh, you would get in trouble so to speak yeah. you wouldn't necessarily be fired on the spot but you would definitely get a get a talking to shall we say from the uh, from the management i actually did have a situation like that in the pharmacy once where i had a father and daughter out in front of my pharmacy and they they kind of said hey we're talking about getting the flu shot but there's a little bit of a, a debate about that in our household so on and so forth and i I actually kind of started to share my own experience and saying I could understand that and seeing people get sick off of the flu shot and my own manager who is nearby had to chime in and immediately kind of shut me down and say and kind of start giving the official party line information about it and say that everyone should still get their shots and so on and so forth. And um when this happened it's not as if you're going to necessarily lose your job but you you're going to get in trouble so to speak because it's the whole the whole point is to push profit. Um that is the bottom line and and you know there there's other there's other rationalizations that they give you but it all boils down to the fact you're supposed to sell this put it in people's arms and make money off of it oh and by the way it's good for them don't you know that but um in general but if you, you unless you were really making a habit of this and being habitual and like refusing to you know give vaccines refusing to refusing to you know trying to talk people out of it then you would be in serious trouble but really it never comes to that because nobody ever makes never makes waves to that level of getting fired I'm actually probably one of the people who's most often getting little talking tos and whatnot, but um, even even then, I never take it far enough to where I'm going to get in any serious trouble because it's honestly, I don't want to lose my job. To be totally blunt, so there's really nobody in the whole medical field that is going to be speaking out against the vaccines. Period. There's not at work. Maybe on social media. Uh, maybe under an assumed identity, not visible yeah. to the public on social media, but certainly not at work in the office in the clinical setting. No. So there's never going to be another side of the story. Basically, no. Not 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 from a professional. Not in a healthcare. Not in a, not from a healthcare professional in a healthcare setting. Only outside of that on alternative media platforms or like in a private person-to-person -person chat with somebody that you meet outside of their work setting who's willing to talk to you more honestly. Yeah. But you might get a doctor like my doctor 
with I'd, I'd ask them before all this started a long time ago. I said, "Do I need any boosters or anything for tetanus?" And you always say, "No, no, you don't need it." There, there is there is such a thing also, especially where I live in California, as you know, hippie doctors who don't believe in some of this kind of stuff and have their own private practice and aren't beholden to corporate. Okay. Um, to corporate things, but even then, those doctors actually still got in trouble on an even higher level with the state when COVID rolled out. There actually was a doctor in my area who actually lost his license to practice as a doctor because he refused to inject the COVID shots. And I remember I actually had to call him on his phone about some of his his former patients who came into my pharmacy because he was no longer practicing. And when I called him on his, what I assume must have been like a private number or maybe it was a message machine rerouted from his old office number that I called. I didn't get a hold of the doctor, but I got a hold of his voicemail, which had, he had changed to a very angry, bitter message about how he had, in his words, you know, lost his job and his license practice because he protected people from these vaccines. And um, that's just a good example of, you know, there was actually a doctor in my area who literally lost his license for refusing administration of the COVID vaccine. The state, not the company he worked for, I I think he even had a private practice, if I recall. Uh, Literally, the state came in and took away his license to practice. Yeah, so people have to just listen to shows like this to get any kind of uh, opposing view which is crazy because i i i this is just an amateur radio show so i guess people aren't going to hold it in the same regard or give it the same weight and that's 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 the problem i think most people are believers in vaccines and and pharmaceuticals in general i mean they must be because two-thirds of the american population takes pharmaceutical medication every day of their lives more americans are on pharmaceuticals than are not yeah. Uh, so yes, they must be very strong believers in it. Otherwise, they wouldn't all be doing it. All right. What What is the most um, lucrative condition that a pharmacist treats on an annual basis? What uh, medical condition that one person can have makes the most amount of money? Probably it? cancer and HIV. Cancer and HIV meds are extremely expensive, often ranging from anywhere from $5,000 to $20,000 a bottle, and that's typically only for a month's supply. There's definitely other extremely expensive medications and conditions out there. Um, a, lot of the, a lot of the costs go into also surgical procedures and things like that that I, that I don't perform or do, or do any kind of billing for, but that I simply do the pharmaceuticals on afterwards. Yeah. But as far as how it pertains, not to the whole healthcare industry, but to the pharmacy, probably the most lucrative point-for-point drugs where they're simply the most expensive, shall we say, and that they're taken monthly, you know, not something you take, you know, once a year, once every few months, something like that, that you have to take every day, every, you know, so on and so forth. Probably cancer and HIV meds. Some of them not are extremely, all of the HIV meds are extremely expensive and a lot of the cancer drugs are extremely expensive. Some of them like Sprice, a brand named Sprycell, literally $20,000 a bottle for one cancer med of Sprycell. Um, and the average, the average HIV uh, med, I think, is like you know five thousand dollars for a typical standard issue bottle of a month supply of HIV medication. So probably those two conditions, at least, necessitate the most expensive medication. Is what I would say. Is the oh, HIV no. monthly for life? Did, did they ever ba- get basically off that? yes? They, those people have to take pill. Anyone who is HIV positive is going to have to take some kind of HIV retroviral drug. Um, and there are new things being developed now. Again, I'm not on the cutting edge of all of this. I'm on the receiving end of it all, not development. But there are some new drugs coming out. But in general, yes, for the most part, all of the HIV retrovirals that we have now, you have to take a pill every single day for the rest of your life. And I'd be quick to point out, one I know you didn't ask this, but one thing I want to jump on while we're on the subject of HIV retrovirals, 
The, there's also now oral, what they call palliative COVID tablets. There's now oral tablets you can take for COVID. Well, guess what? Those COVID tablets, uh, such as ritonavir and malnupiravir, the reason they have VIR, vir, in, their, in the suffix of their name is that they're actually antiviral meds. Those COVID oral medication tablets are actually HIV medications. And so, in other words, when a person gets this, receives this COVID HIV, you know, medication, they're basically taking a five-day course of HIV meds implying that they have some kind of compromised immune system. That's actually what those COVID oral tablets are. They're HIV medications. And what are those? What are they? Are they, I've heard they are just very strong antibiotics. Same with chemotherapy. It, they, all they do is kill stuff. In a, in, a, in a very simple term, yes. They're antiviral and they're anti, they're not, well, antibiotics and antivirals are different, but they do perform the same function of theoretically you know, killing some kind of infection, killing some kind of outside organism that is inside of you, some kind of virus that is proliferating. I don't know the exact methodology of the, you know, extermination of a virus or on a microscopic level. I couldn't explain the pharmacokinetics to you. I'd have to look it up off the top of my head. But um, similar to cancer, yes, cancer is a bit different because cancer is typically treated with chemo, which is about blasting a, you know, basically about trying to poison this cancerous growth and kill the cancerous growth without killing the person. That's basically what chemo really is. Yeah. And um, I couldn't explain to you the exact mechanism of destruction on a physiological level, but yes, basically they're, they're actually medications that kill you. And by antibiotics, antivirals are things that are basically, you know, I mean, all medication will ultimately kill you, obviously, but they're medications that are designed to, to attack some kind of other entity that is inside of your body and hopefully not do too much damage to you in the process. That's why they have to be so tightly controlled. Um, and that's, uh, I mean, I have a lot to say about that as well, but um, yeah, that's the gist of it. Do you believe in viruses? Um, I've, I've definitely been educated and trained to believe in viruses. I'm starting to see it a bit differently now, and I'm even starting to see the, the same way that the human body Treats, treat, you know, has its own internal process of treating disease and external things or potentially things that are not fully external. But um, I don't have a fully formulated belief on viruses right now. I used to, but it's becoming more and more challenged now. That's something I'm still doing a lot of research on, making my mind up on. But um, let me put it to you this way. I used to be a very big believer in viruses. I'm starting to question it more now, though I still don't have a fully finalized opinion on that. I'm still doing my own research. Do you believe in demons? Um, yes, most definitely. I definitely believe in um, demonic things. Whether you believe that they are external things coming from some kind of evil force or whether you believe it's some kind of internal archetypical thing welling up from inside of you, I, I do believe in demons, yes, in the simplest sense. Because demons were the original way, I understand, that people thought they got sick. Demons possessed the person, they got sick, and they just got renamed viruses. Well, it, it, it depends. The, the way I would relate it to is my, I mean, the way I look back on it here as someone who's trained in Western medication or Western medicine is the original belief that I would think of would go all the way back to ancient Greece where they believed in the four humors. It was like, you know, fill it, what is it, like bile, phlegm, um, you know, you know, a few other bodily like fluids, you know, fluids and humors. They believed that basically you had to keep all these bodily fluids and humors in, in the correct uh, balance, so to speak. Otherwise, you would become ill. Or that if something somehow, I guess, sort of like, you know, got into it, got there and negatively affected one of your humors, it could make you sick as well. Uh, moving on into, I guess, furthermore, like, I guess, into medieval times, they probably believed more in the demonic influence in the same way that people in those times, they, the way they would think about the influence of the devil, or the influence of demons, was very much like they believed that this thing would enter their body. 
Like if something happened and you became very angry, like I'm getting angry right now, that's because the spirit of anger or the demon of anger is invading into you and causing you to have the sensation. If you look at someone else and you're jealous of something that they have or that they embody, you get jealous and start thinking these negative jealous thoughts. That's because the spirit or the demon of jealousy is entering your body and doing all these things to you from an, in an external way. Therefore, if you're getting diseased, well, now you just have a demon of disease and pestilence entering your body and doing all this to you as well. It was, I think that was kind of their mentality they had back in those days. Yeah. Have you looked into the AIDS? The AIDS? Uh, a, a, a bit, was, yes. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not super knowledgeable about AIDS. I'm, I'm under 40 years old myself, so I was, you know, I was already, I was born during that time. You know, I, I wasn't around for the AIDS, you know, crisis or scare that happened back in the 80s. So I can't speak to that. But um, yes, I have, I have looked into HIV as well. And I can actually tell you a story about that. In fact, I'm going to tell you a story. Um, okay. The HIV, the, the way we are told to think about HIV infection and treatment is not accurate. Okay. I can't fully tell you what HIV is or how, you know, what it really is or how to really treat it. But I can certainly tell you that the methods of transmission and who is susceptible to HIV, the way it is explained to us is cer certainly not correct. And I will tell you why. There was a very scary incident I had some years back where I had uh, not a fresh cut. I had a fresh cut on my arm. It had already scabbed over. It wasn't like an exposed wound. It was a scab, um, but it was still there and it was still very visible. And um, I was actually treating an HIV patient at this time. And as the HIV positive patient was talking to me, and he basically kind of spit up or hawked out accidentally a little piece of uh, phlegm or mucus out of his nose or mouth. And it... And for the, for the uninformed, um, HIV doesn't just travel in blood and semen. It's also in any form of mucus, including uh, anal mucus, which is why HIV can be spread anally through anal sex. Mm -hmm. also that same mucus allegedly. Actually, I want to say allegedly. Yes, yes, allegedly. Um, and that same mucus of your nose and phlegm is actually HIV positive as well. Uh, so when this happened, this glob of HIV positive snot or phlegm basically landed right there on my forearm um, directly next to, not directly on, but directly next to my scabbed over um, cut that I had on my arm, the patient and I both immediately looked down at it, saw what it was. The patient quickly kind of just apologized, and I immediately went to the sink, and I just, I doused my whole arm in freaking bleach, and, you know, and I pretty much disinfected myself to the best of my ability. Um, the next, the very next day, uh, no, sorry, not the, the day, two days after, not the next day, but the morning of two days later, I woke up two days after that incident, and I had an extremely badly um, inflamed and swollen throat, the worst I've ever had in my life, which is actually a symptom of early HIV onset. It's extremely common in the first few couple of days or even the first few weeks for a person who contracted HIV to either A, wake up with their entire body, especially with their back and chest all broken out in like kind of acne or skin eruptions, and or to experience what I did, which is waking up with an incredibly badly swollen throat. And knowing, knowing this and knowing that I woke up two days later at being exposed to HIV and waking up with um, HIV, early onset HIV symptoms, I actually thought, oh, crap, I literally might have gotten HIV. Um, but as it turns out, no, despite the fact that I was exposed to HIV with HIV positive snot landing on my freaking scabbed over arm injury, despite the fact that I woke up two days later with early HIV onset symptoms, I am HIV negative. I was not infected. And so that tells me a lot right there about the way they tell us about the transmission of these things is simply, and the nature of them in general, is simply not true. Well, to counter that, I would suggest anyone, including if you want, go watch House of Numbers 
the AIDS hoax. That that'll be show note number five tonight. I don't I don't believe in viruses. I definitely don't believe in the HIV virus, and I don't I don't think that a virus causes or leads to AIDS, which is just another syndrome, which just is a collection of symptoms that they've turned into a syndrome, just like. COVID, or I call it COVIDs, because I think this is just AIDS 2.0, because they did the whole exercise back in the 80s, and it worked pretty well, and now they just expanded it to the rest of society. I, I, I would suggest that the bleach you put on probably caused a lot of death and destruction in and around your arm, and that poison went through your body and probably was the cause of your throat. So I, I really, I'm really just completely convinced now that there's no such thing as contagion either which is another uh, link I'll put in the show notes fake11.com forward slash charlie mike at cm and you can read the book the contagion myth I really think we need to switch our paradigm about how we get sick why we get sick and uh, viruses are definitely not I just don't believe in viruses or contagious pathogens as well so Hopefully you can, you sh maybe if you're interested, you look into that because I don't think you had anything to worry about. Sure. Well, it definitely was a wake up call to me. Maybe I don't have to worry so much about this, but, um, yeah, what was, but, um, sorry, what was it? It was the, the AIDS hoax. Was that the name of it? It's called the house of numbers, house of numbers, the AIDS hoax. That's on FACO tube, which is my video platform. I did put it in today's show notes. So when I send you the link to today's show, you can actually look right now because guess what? I update as I talk. If you go to allshotsclot.com, just go to today's show, ASC002, you'll see the show note. It's, it's, this was, this was the, the precursor of COVID. And they did it mainly for, for homosexuals and uh, minorities. And the test is also the PCR test, which is not a test, but it's an amplification process. It does not test for anything. It just simply finds whatever sequence they're looking for and amplifies it based on a number of non-uniform uh, cycles. And once you start taking the poison, the rat poison or the antibiotic or whatever the cocktail is, that's what kills you. Now, I know they scaled it right back. So it's just a general, probably just causes a general malaise especially to your bank account, but it won't kill you. And I think there were many people that were killed by the medication. I think all of them were killed by medication back in the, in the eighties when they were uh, diagnosing this. So not to say that the gay men weren't getting ill because they were also abusing other petrochemical pharmaceuticals. And that was causing and taxing their system to death. So when they went to the doctor, they just gave them and they helped stimulate the demand for the antivirals, which were extremely high dose and toxic back in the day. And that finished them off. Which is why I think this whole thing is just a depopulation slash debilitation campaign. For the general population. And like you said, two-thirds of the American population are already on pharmaceuticals. So it's really an easy transition to give them constant vaccines. 
Oh, absolutely. They're already prepped and primed for it. Which is what you see in your pharmacy, which is why I wanted to have someone on who's been, who's in the business. I, you really are just confirming what I already suspected. And that is that people want them. They demand them. Um, in your own personal circle, do you know anyone that's been killed or injured by in, by any vaccine or in particular the COVID vaccine? Well, I can't I can't definitively say, for example, that they were killed by the vaccine. But yes, we did have a co-worker uh, within my company at another site, not somebody who worked in my pharmacy, but another one actually did die um, allegedly of COVID. But again, I believe this person was vaccinated. And so, again, that's an indicator right there. It may have been the vaccine that was the architect of her demise. Um, we did actually lose an employee allegedly to COVID. But again, this is a vaccinated person who supposedly took this 100% safe and effective vaccine. And I highly suspect the vaccine had something to do with it. We also had another woman who was, again, I have to be very careful to not give out personal information, but she was a pharmacy employee who was pregnant. Yeah. And she received the COVID shot and she had, an, we don't know the specifics of it due to privacy law, but you know, basically she had an extreme negative reaction that affected her pregnancy and she left work and never came back. We never saw or heard from her again. And that woman, well, again, I can't give her personal information now, but she wasn't even, an, let's just say she wasn't even an American. She was actually a, um, she was an, an immigrant uh, coming in on a work visa or something that, or an intern coming in on a work visa, something like that from another part of the world. Yeah. And um, she, she had an extreme negative reaction. Actually, the one of the worst any of us ever had because it affected her pregnancy and we simply never saw nor heard from her again. And we weren't really allowed to inquire for privacy reasons about the exact nature of her reaction. Only that it, we, the only word we got was that it affected her pregnancy. It was an emergency. She's gone. Yeah, so sad. So sad what they're doing. Jacques says, You're, this guest is fantastic, very open-minded, and admits when he doesn't know. Well, that's a good Oh, yeah. I'm not going to pretend to be an expert on subjects that I'm not. Like, for example, when it gets down to, like, you know, I'm not going to pretend I'm an expert on electron microscopy and the manufacturing of vaccines. I know the gist of it in layman's terms, but I'm not going to pretend that I'm some kind of super science man who has all these advanced degrees and knows everything. I, I know that I'm a pill, I'm a street level pill pusher for big pharma and I don't pretend to be anything else. But you're fulfilling a demand, sadly, which is, isn't that crazy though? I just find it nuts that people are so addicted to drugs. It, it's, I guess it's no surprise. What, that what, I, what I compare it to, I, I start to take a, a religious bent when I, when I speak on um, the, the nature of the function that the healthcare industry fulfills for modern day people. I very much believe that healthcare is kind of like the, the church and the of modern society and that doctors and pharmacists and nurses are kind of like the priests and the nuns and the acolytes of the religion. And um, one of the things that I would say about that is, um, sorry, I'm kind of losing my train of thought here again. Um, well, it's a new religion. You talked about this on your broadcast with Silas and, and we've I've had a couple people in the truth community say this that it's a new religion. The mask is a is a religious garment to signal that you're in the religion, and the the vaccine is the holy water, and the uh, it just goes on and on. All the religious uh, connections and people really want to. People are real joiners and really people are followers, and they just want to be part of something. And this is the biggest thing that's ever happened in their life. Because as you said, religion has almost no place in most people's lives, especially in some of these more mixed up Western so-called democracies. 
Right. The, the modern day religion is the worship of man in his mind. It's the worship of man created uh, things as, you know, savior mechanisms. So what's going to save us? It's going to be some kind of technology or some kind of device that we ourselves are going to invent and put up as a, you know, a, a golden calf to be worshipped and venerated. Something that you cannot criticize, even though it's just some man-made thing. Um, I, think, I believe that's very much what it's about. Yeah, and the, the, the really devoutly religious people are the some of the bigger skeptics. I thought, well, at least there's some. I Maybe I shouldn't be so general because a lot of the religions, organized religions, were bought off early on. And the, the war gamers, and they are war gamers that planned this out. They had every, se every, every segment of society covered, especially religion. So they paid these people to close down their churches because they knew that they had to disseminate the message. Otherwise, when people get together, they compare notes and they start talking and, and it causes problems. Yes, absolutely. Definitely that part, that was a big part of the isolation element of the, the COVID, I believe. It was about, or the lockdowns, I should say. It was about information control and simply keeping everybody isolated, told, telling them to stay in their little individualized you know, cages, their little houses, and to get information from nothing but those pre-approved mainstream sources you see on TV or on the yeah. mainstream media websites. It was about keeping people away from each other simply because if people just started congregating and talking with each other, they'd start to realize that nothing was really wrong. It would start to become too obvious. And I actually believe on top of the religious garment element of the face masks, part of the reason the face mask thing had to be enforced so much is because they had to make it dramatic. If you just looked around the street or looked around Walmart or wherever you are and nobody was wearing any masks, it frankly wouldn't look scary. Seeing those masks all the time kind of reinforces the fear factor and it kind of makes it real to the perception, so to speak. If everyone was just, if it was told, you know, we are everyone's allowed to congregate in large numbers without the mask or any other control measures, forget all that six foot stuff, it wouldn't have been so scary and effective. But seeing it enforced all over the place made it kind of real to people's perceptions. And I frankly also believe in the USA, at least, because this was a global operation. I believe that this was also synced in time with the 2020 race riot so that you would have to accept contradictory information. We were being told in the USA that at the same time, there's a deadly respiratory virus spreading. We're all going to die. You have to stay locked down in your house stays six feet away from everybody else, wear a face mask. But at the same time, you should also be running out in the streets in numbers of hundreds and thousands in major metro cities and rioting, looting and burning and giant mobs of people um, during the supposed pandemic. And you were supposed to accept both of these things as moral imperatives that you were supposed to support, despite the fact that they are contradictory. They can't, you know, both of those things cannot be the thing to do. Yeah. Yet we were told to accept this, and I believe that's part of a kind of like the brainwashing and the sort of almost breaking of your brain and the breaking of you in general as a person, forcing you to accept um, contradictory things and holding them both to be true at the same time in order to kind of, frankly, brainwash you and break you. Yeah, totally. The, this is a psychological operation. Now, you're from the military. What, does the does the Marine Corps have a, a psychological or psyops uh, psyops branch? As far as I, I mean, I'm sure that it does on some level. Every branch of the military has their own different intelligence uh, branch. I actually qualified for military intelligence, believe it or not, when I took the aptitude test. I'm sure you I'm, would have. Cause I'm, I made the exact, yeah. I made the bare minimum on the line requirement for military intelligence, but I actually qualified. I probably should have taken them up on it. But um, I have a feeling that most of those psyops are probably on a higher level than the four branches. You have the Army, Navy, Air Force, Marine Corps, and then technically the Coast Guard as well. Um, but I don't think that most of the psyops probably come from a higher level on the Pentagon and probably mm. come from a much higher level than even the four branches of the service. It probably comes from a more centralized source like 
Pentagon, DOD. CIA kind yeah. of stuff. You know, it's, it's probably more of that kind of that department than in, on an individual level. The PSYOP on the more lower levels is just how do we enforce discipline on soldiers, make them stay in line? How do we, you know, it, but it wouldn't be, um, it, w- it wouldn't be so much on the, the higher levels that are coming down from like the Pentagon and the CIA and all this kind of craziness. Yeah, I tend to agree with that. Well, this this is, this, I don't know how many people in the world realize how well planned out this was, how it's a military operation, all the things we talk about. It's just so big. It's awesome. It's an awesome coordination worldwide. Of course, the internet helps. The fact the United States occupies almost every country helps. Um, the NGOs that originate from the tax dodgers in the United States, that all helps. There was such a high level of cooperation I don't think we've ever seen in human history around the world on this, and it makes it way more effective. I, I believe in many ways the, the COVID shot, the lockdowns, the vaccinations, in many ways may have been the first truly global event that we have all experienced together. Even yeah. the world wars didn't touch every corner of planet Earth. That's um, right. You know, even even so on and so forth, I could cite examples here, but the bottom line is, in, in many ways, the, the COVID shot and the vaccines and the lockdowns were the first truly global event, at least in recorded history, that we know of. Yeah. Yeah, I think so. And the problem is, it's just going to keep going. We're, people think it's over. I think we're just in a lull right now. Oh, I, I agree. I think it was a data. I think it was a data gathering litmus test, and there's going to be more to come. I think that a huge amount of the the reason for all the administration of the shots wasn't just to say like you know population reduction or reducing population growth. I think it was for gathering data on people, seeing you know who reacted and why, who took the shot and why, how did the general you know what percentage of the population took the shot and why. Um, seeing what level of pushback they got and what form of pushback, you know, what that really, what that really looked like, uh, so on and so forth. And I think a huge amount of it was actually gathering data to plan for future operations. Not because COVID was the main goal; it was actually, if anything, it was like the tra- it was the test run, it was the, the t- it was the training op. And it's we're and basically they're going to take all of the data and everything that they gathered from this and feed it into their algorithms, and that they treat like these oracular AI devices or whatever. And from there, they are going to probably use all that data against us on future psyops. Yes. Catherine Watt says that the Secretary of the Department of Health and Human Services just put an amendment through for Marburg and Ebola in the in the law, in one of the acts that enables all this. I, I think the best the best way to describe these are all enabling acts to allow this circumvention of all the laws that rule the land, including the Constitution. Because in a military emergency, pretty much everything is suspended. So maybe Marburg or Ebola will be the the flavor du jour because really there's an infinite number of so-called sequences that make up a virus that is infectious, that kills people. And the delivery vehicle is the same, this lipid nanoparticle vaccine which i think just if if that is true i just think these lipid which is fat and nano which is small particle these little globules that they say are the transport vehicles of these these sequences of proteins they call uh, like a simulated virus or replicas of the virus the dead virus i think just the little fat globules are probably the things that are causing all the damage. And it's just straight up clotting. And it's from micro clot to macro clot. 
macro clot being a heart attack or a stroke. What do you think of that? I mean that that is that is possible. I mean that does it runs contrary to you know a lot of the you know the training that we're given. Um, I would say that it's within the realm of possibility. Again, I'm more open to alternative ideas about how you know how things are are formed now than I was before. Um, I I don't want to give a super definitive take on it because I by my own admission I I can't truly empirically say through through any kind of evidence that I can display, but I can certainly see why you could reach that kind of conclusion. Yes, mm. and I do I do think that a lot of the things that we are told about the causations of health conditions are not accurate, yeah. and that basically there's not only are there better ways to treat uh, not only are there better ways to treat these negative conditions that we incur in life, but there's better ways to prevent them as well. Um, there's a lot more preventability than you realize, but again, nobody really thinks about the things this way. They think about it in a very transactional way. Oh, if I get sick, I just go to the doctor. They give me something. You know, I they they don't think about it in a lifestyle kind of way. How much does a type one diabetic patient bring in to pharmacies? Well, let, let me explain diabetes really quick. A type 1 diabetic actually means a person who is born with some kind of congenital diabetes, like a person who just kind of lost the genetic yeah. lottery at birth and they got born with a... Well, I, I, di I disagree with that assessment because I, okay, okay. I, 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 have, I have one in the family, so I disagree with that. I know what a type 1 is. I was okay. just... I do know what that is because I have okay. one living with me, and I'm. But but for for the yeah. audience, and a, a type two diabetic is a person who develops diabetes later in life due to personal eating habits. Sorry, you have to remember you are talking to a healthcare worker. I am going to give you even me. I'm going to give you some of the the main the oh, main okay. Okay. things. Okay. Okay, that's um, fine. Especially for the the general public here, who's not as in the know as as I am about certain things. A type two diabetic is a person who develops diabetes later in life through basically their, unfortunately, through their living habits, through their dietary habits. There's also, you know, there's also um, basically so, what you'd call kind of a, a pregnancy-related diabetes that goes away after, so, you know, a woman gives birth so far. You know, what did it have? I tend to agree. I tend to disagree with your, with the official story of type 2 as well. I think there are poisons and pesticides that help interrupt the the mechanism that allows insulin to help metabolize glucose. I, I just fund. I just don't blame the victim, and the, I just I really think that Americans are really sick. A because of all the pharmaceuticals, and B because I think they are being systemically poisoned on a very low level all the time. I I just don't think that everyone is just really a gluttonous, a sedentary, obese pig. Although I would be quick to point out to you that. Two two thirds of America, just the same as that figure who are taking uh, taking medications. Two thirds of Americans are overweight, and over one third of Americans are obese. And to be totally blunt, mm -hmm. a huge amount of it is in fact lifestyle driven. I'm sorry, not to be rude or contradictory, but okay. I see this every single day. Um, the um, the what people eat, the amount they eat, how unhealthy it really is. I I I do think that lifestyle does play a big part of it because we don't see this in certain other countries where the the diet is different and so on and so forth. But even, I mean, even just the physical size of Americans is astounding to be totally blunt. I, I don't want to get no, too harsh here, but a big no, part of it okay. is lifestyle. I think at very least people open themselves up to these things with their lifestyles. Is it, well, I, I, I don't live in America. Canada is not far behind probably, but when I've gone there over the, over the years, I often think, man, either people are really sick or they're really screwing up on everything they're doing because they really look so ill. And I wonder, do the controllers sitting over there in Geneva or the city of London, 
they check their cameras and say, you know, these guys are ready. <laughs> they, they, these, I, I think I think they may. I, I think they may be watching that exact data yeah, to tell we, you the truth. They, we we need to bring in a cult really badly to America. We don't need half these people anyway. They're getting too uppity. A lot of them are suspicious of vaccines. We really have to pour it on now. We need a concerted effort just to cull this herd right down. And it's not a problem because robots and we can flood the country with really aggressive, hungry, third world people that would be happy just to uh, work at a slave job. So it's not really a problem. Do, do you see that possibly as an organized? Oh, ab oh ab absolutely. I could see that. Um, mm. you definitely, I think that part of the population replacement agenda definitely hinges on AI as well. They want to bring in basically... Um, you know, frankly, kind of uneducated, underqualified people from the outside of the country in order to do basically a lot of kind of like the grunt labor. And then they all of the higher end processes, like the running of infrastructure, they want to assign to AI. Yeah, I think they actually want to end up in many instances kind of phasing out, dare I say it, kind of like more intelligent human beings in order to replace the management supervisors and bosses with AI and then simply have people who are frankly kind of a maybe not quite as high on the, you know, not of a high IQ or not, you know, just simply not the same as the people that have more capacity for abstract thought and then just have them do the grunt work and essentially be managed by an automated computer program. And then they presumably will live as, you know, the, I don't know, the evil oligarchs at the top of the pyramid, so to speak. And most of the rest of society that could potentially be a threat to them has been phased out. Yeah, the COVID dissident. Or, or is so incredibly, you know, unhealthy and physically inhibited that they can't do anything because they're addicted to opioids, they're dependent on medication, they're physically unhealthy and overweight. That That is absolutely what the establishment wants. And, and they uh, want to profit off of it as well. And they pretty much have that already. Now, I heard on the, on the other broadcast, this will be the last question of the night, that uh, you are a, a refusenik, you don't take the vaccine into your life? What, yes, that is that is correct. What do you think the outlook is for us dissidents in the next five to ten years? Will we be able to stay outside the their vaccine program or are we slowly going to just be crushed into the machine because there will be no other holding cell or place in society for us? You see... I, I totally understand the question, and I, yeah. I wish to God I could give you a definitive answer, but I cannot. I do not have a crystal ball. But what I can say is that grinding process of people already being ground down is already happening. I've mm -hmm. already had a lot of refused nicks, slowly in small numbers, but ones and twos, even people who had, even people who frankly had, shall we say, conspiratorially minded um, theories in regards to population reduction. They all ended up knuckling under and taking the shot eventually for one reason or another, whether it's because they wanted to travel, they wanted some new job that required it. Yeah. Um, but in general, a lot of refusenics um, slowly but surely started giving over for one reason or another, usually employment related. Um, whether or not that's going to happen across the board, I'm not sure, because actually a lot of places are dropping their vaccine requirements yeah. kind of quietly. So. That may not actually be totally true across the board. A lot of industries are actually dropping their mandates and requirements. So I don't necessarily think that we're going to just get steamrolled into, into it. Um, if anything, they seem to be winding it down. We may get rolled up in the next thing that's coming because, like I said, I believe the COVID shot was, more, was mostly about gathering data and laying infrastructure and screwing up everybody's bodies more than anything else. Um, so what is coming for us that did not receive the vaccination? 
The only, I mean, in a worst case situation, they could release some kind of real virus that will kill everybody who didn't take the COVID shot. And then you would get rid of all of the dissidents and only have the cattle left. That is certainly possible, but that would be very dramatic as well. That would be a worst case situation. Um, what, I mean, are we going to be, I guess another question is, you know, is there going to be some kind of similar lockdown because we're going to have a new pandemic or a World War III or a mass famine, you know, forced starvation incident? And then if you have not received the shot at that point, it's going to become much more like the revelation mark of the beast where you're going to have to get the shot. Or you will not be given access to the, the services and resources that you need, i.e. denied food, denied health care or something like that. That could potentially be coming. But again, I just couldn't say what form it's going to take. And I actually think that the establishment themselves may not form, fully know what form it's going to take because they're gathering in data and deciphering it and getting updates live in real time from their little AI algorithms they're feeding everything into as well. Okay. Well, unknown is just as good an answer, I suppose. I don't know either. I know. I truly wish I could tell you I've got my own theories on it, but the very fact that we haven't experienced any kind of mass casualty event from either the vaccinated or the unvaccinated leads me to believe that it may not be too dramatic immediately, but I do think that we are going to, we're going to hear about this again. This, this whole number of who took the COVID shot and who did not and the vaccinated and unvaccinated, we probably will have this rear its head again in the incoming decade that we're going into, even before the end of this decade. What form it's going to take and why, I'm not sure, but I do think it's coming. Are people still living, leaving California, do you think? Is, it, is there a net outflow? Of yes. As far, as far as I know, for, uh, California's population is shrinking despite the fact that we are experiencing a massive influx coming over the southern border. Regardless mm -hmm. of that, the numbers of Cali the population of California actually declined for the first time in recorded history recently because it's just becoming totally untenable to live here. Is I that know multiple people, even just recently, most of my like high school era friends, or not most, but a lot of them have, have out of the state. I have actually some friends right now who either have recently or are getting ready to move out of the state. California is is dying in a sense, even though it's huge, even though it's fantastically wealthy, even though it's still wildly overpopulated. It is dying and the population is shrinking, even with a mass influx of people coming in. The outflow leaving is actually greater. Well, we see people coming over the Arizona and Texas border, New Mexico border. Are, do they, are they pouring over the California border too? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Just I mean, I mean, I, oh yeah, yeah. I mean, I could, I, I mean, again, I'm, I'm not involved in border patrol or any kind of law enforcement, but I could tell you, oh yes, there, there are huge influxes coming into California as well. And they're really not Mexican. They're everything else. They're well, everything. the majority of them are Mexican, yes. But there's, oh, but really? still, oh yeah. yes, no, it is true. They trust me. I mean, I, I mean, literally, I, I speak Spanish. I mean, okay, like, you know, I, I mean, I, I've literally learned how to speak Spanish, not fully fluently, but conversation level, just because I have to to do my job. California is actually now majority Hispanic. Um, the, okay. the whites are now a major a minority in, um, or a minor plurality, whatever you want to call us, in the state of California. Yeah. Hispanics are the majority. They are coming in in mass. Um, and, and to be totally blunt, other groups of people are leaving proportionally. And they're Mexican. They're not every other. Uh, they're they're country, all they're all South kinds of, of stripes and colors. No, yeah. they're, they're they're all kinds of stripes and colors. Absolutely. I mean, working in a pharmacy in California is like working in the Tower of Babel. Mm. Um, I mean, there's people from all over the world, Southeast Asia, Africa, all over Central and South America, um, a handful of you know Eastern Europeans. Um, Huge amounts of people from all over Asia and the Middle East. And I when I say Asia, I mean a very broad sense. East Asia, South Asia, the Middle East. Yeah, uh, People from all over are flooding into California, both legally and illegally, from just every angle you could conceive of. I mean, the amount of languages you have to speak and the people, the methods of communication are truly crazy. It, it, it is like the Tower of Babel out here. 
especially if you live either like in the LA area or like the San Francisco Bay area, it's something else, man. Let me tell you. And, and it's, and it's the replacement. So you think the replacement is real? It, it appears to be. I mean, I, oh. I, I can't look at it and say, I mean, the very fact that I've had to learn the new language of an incoming people kind of tells me that. Yeah. Wow. Well, you're very well spoken. Do you have a podcast or a website or anything or anywhere people to, can go? To be go? quite honest, no, I'm actually very new to all of this. A lot of people have actually encouraged me to do that kind of thing, to start my own podcast or to do something to that effect. Uh, this is all very new to me. I've only just got on Silas's Discord in the last couple of weeks. I've never done any kind of interview like this on a streaming service. I had to figure out what Restream is and how to use it. Yeah. Um, so this is all very new to me, but I'm actually very, uh, very interested here in uh, kind of continuing, you know, speaking to people on the uh, the immaterium of the internet here about these subjects. Yeah. Well, you're highly uh, knowledgeable and extremely well spoken, and uh, yeah, you you do very well. You should definitely look into it. I think you'd have a lot of listeners, especially if you spoke from the area that you're an expert in. So you haven't said anything that I'd fire you for if I was your <laughs> boss, because it's just really general observation. That's not illegal yet to talk, speak out about. It's not hate speech yet. So not yet. Yeah. So that's uh, that's really good. Is is there any? Do you have any email or anything you want to give out for to be contacted, or you, you could just comment on my blog if you want. I'll will give you a, a login, and you can if you want to respond, I guess, or my Discord. Yeah, cur currently not. I'm just not set up to take in you know mass amounts of emails from the general public. But anyone who wants to comment on the blog or on the video here, by all means, or send it into uh send it into the fakeologist or just post it in the comments here. I'll certainly take a look at that, and uh, maybe we can cover it again on some future some future event. Yeah, I think we should. Alrighty then. Well, thank you so much, uh, Milo, for calling in. It was a really good show. I, I kept you a little longer, but I think we kept the thing going pretty smoothly. So, yeah, I really appreciate you uh, sharing all that info. Oh, absolutely, man. I, I enjoyed coming on here. Like I said in the beginning, it's actually very cathartic for me to finally have a, a forum and an outlet to talk about all this stuff. Whereas at work, I'm always biting my tongue and try, I have to remind myself to not say anything and don't make waves and... Ultimately, it is uh, it is good to finally talk to some like-minded people and get it out there. And I hope everybody uh, enjoyed it and took something away from it. Well, I certainly did. And we don't have anyone to talk to outside our community either. There's no one in our lives, for the most part, that, that believe in the or don't believe in the mainstream media and believe in alternate media. So that's that's what my site's all about. And I really thank you for participating. Anytime, man. Thanks for having me on. All right. We'll have you back again for sure. All right, thank you, Milo from California, a insider who works in the healthcare field. Thanks everyone for joining in. I'm a little tired because I've done way too much talking today, and uh, I may or may not do a show tomorrow because this is the All Shots Clot show number two, which was supposed to be Monday, but we're doing it now for scheduling purposes. But we may open up the phone lines for a little bit tomorrow and talk with anyone who wants to give their story and we'll play maybe a couple um, a couple videos around this topic but otherwise if you like this show we are value for value pay whatever you think it's the show is worth a dollar two dollars fakeologist.com forward slash donate and if you want to comment just send me an email and I will activate a an account on the fakeologist platform that's how I'm going to do it for a couple weeks at least. 
And that's it. Another great week is beginning, and we've, we've had many really great shows. I did a show earlier today with Jim Rizzoli, the most dangerous revisionist on the internet, he says. And that went pretty well. well. There's tons of content here. I hope you guys are enjoying it. And we'll see you next time. Good night. Cotton 